Hey, and welcome to another episode of We Have Such Films to Show You, the horror podcast where me and Yakov talk about a horror film on a podcast. Uh, I am your... It's, a, uh, it's on a different <laughs> podcast. We talk about a horror <laughs> film on a different podcast, and we discuss it on this podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, you'll also want to listen to We Have Such, We Have Such Films to Show You to Show You uh, to get the, the, the backstory and the context on all this. <laughs> Pause to drink water during introduction. All right, yep. <laughs> I am uh, I am Josh Millard. I'm Yakov, uh, and uh, oh, this is our uh, two year podcast anniversary. It is happy podcast anniversary, buddy. Happy podcast anniversary. I got you this nothing. Ah, um, yeah, it was uh, our first episode. Is it? Uh, well, we're two days off. Our first episode was on. Uh, April 14th of 2013, and it is April 12th of 2013 when we're recording this, and it'll probably be the 13th or the 14th when this actually goes up. So Exactly. So it's honest there. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, to think two years ago, we still had the entire Hellraiser franchise ahead of us, <laughs> and uh, we're, 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 we're both, I think, genuinely excited, even though, like, you know, it's one of those things where I think back on that, and I feel like uh, going in... coming. This well, like like, had, like we yeah. both expected it to be sort of like, oh, we know they're going to get worse at the end. And I'd, <laughs> I'd even seen uh, several of the later ones that were terrible, uh, although albeit, you know, far enough back that I had forgotten how bad they were, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, it's like I, I think we both were like, like oh, well, <laughs> they're probably going to get pretty bad. But in that sort of like hopeful way where you think, oh, well, this long distance relationship might be tough, but, you know, we'll work it out. And then like, uh, you know, a year later, you're breaking up because – you know you can't deal with it um that <laughs> that went dark <laughs> but anyway the, the the point is the point is yes we were so young and stupid and then uh and then we got through those hellraiser movies and then we realized we could start reviewing movies that we liked again and uh yeah. and and here we are yep now. and for a for a, for a once every couple of weeks once fortnightly podcast that should have been uh, 52 episodes in two years, and we're at 43. So we didn't. We've had those gappy moments, but we haven't lost that much time. We've done yeah, pretty okay I'm surprised we actually have uh, as much. I mean, I don't think we've ever gone longer than a month without doing a podcast. Like maybe a month and a couple of days. I think I think we did five weeks one time when just yeah. one fucking thing after another. Uh, yeah, I think that was. Was that around the time that I got married? I think it might have been. Yeah. Uh, yeah, your marriage really—I don't know—I don't approve. It uh, really disrupted. Really my got podcasting in the way of the schedule. podcast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, it's a sticking point in the relationship of me and you and the podcast. Yep. Uh, is my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. But this episode, uh, we're talking about uh, it follows, and this is mm -hmm. this is one of the. I think this may be the first episode we've done about a movie that we both had to actually go to the movie theater and watch. Yeah, uh, and I mean, we didn't have to go to the movie theater, well, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we did. I, th I think this was – it was worthwhile for me to go to the movie theater and drink way too much Diet Coke and watch this. <laughs> See, I had a couple beers. Well, I had a beer and a half. I ordered oh, a beer, yeah. and then they ran out the tap halfway through pouring it, so they gave me that plus you know an actual full pour or something else, so – did, oh, did you go to a movie theater where they beer you? Oh yeah, there's a great there's a great uh, theater uh, right in my neighborhood, uh, the St. John Cinema, uh, where they've got a, a couple of screens. It's not a big theater or anything, but like they're they're two decent sized uh, actual you know screens and chairs and whatnot, and they sell pizza and beer. Uh, so you go in and yeah, spend 
seven bucks to see the movie and another seven bucks on you know beer and pizza and works out pretty seven well. Seven bucks to see Jesus Christ! I know, right? Well, it's you know it's it's a I mean, local, we, it's it's not a big metroplex. It's a little right. so you, you don't have a whole lot of selection. They'll be showing it follows for I'm sure uh, several weeks, and they're also showing yeah. Furious Seven. So like you know if you ha- want to see something other than what they happen to be showing. Obviously, it's not. You know, <laughs> yeah, but the trade-off is yeah. It's it, and they used to be mostly a second run, and they they transferred more to first run recently. I think after upgrading their uh, projectors to be digital, and at that point, I think you might as well be. Is probably first part run. of the deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody's got to deliver the. Uh, although I don't know, is it? Do they get it released digitally in a movie theater with digital projection now? Like, do they? Does somebody like? Does somebody have to show up from the studio with like a flash drive, or do they just download it? You know, they, I, I'm not sure. I would not be surprised if they're still essentially shipping around some sort of like you know digital hard drive enclosure, partly to you know make some desperate attempt to fight off piracy and whatnot. Um, so I bet I bet they still have to deal with delivery logistics, uh, but I don't know. I, I'd actually be curious to to hear that because an actual like theater size movie file has got to be a pretty big chunk of something too. Um, I mean, a, you know, a it's still just bandwidth is bandwidth, but yeah, yeah, I guess because I mean, it would be, would it be higher than Blu-ray? I, I wonder. I would think so. Yeah, I would think yeah. whatever the theater spec is has to be, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty top end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I know there's been a lot of changes in you know the movie projection industry, but I haven't really followed any of it closely at all. I don't really know what the actual state of play is. I do know that the projector in that theater we watched it in is set up at a slight. It, it's a little trapezoidal the way it's it's uh, projected, which uh, is the sort of thing that apparently annoys me more than annoys anybody else <laughs> in the universe. But uh, but I couldn't help but notice. Like and once we were watching the movie. It didn't really become an issue, but uh, but it's sort of like during the previews and 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 whatnot, I I could see some pretty significant trapezoidal stuff going on. It was weird. Any good previews during yours? I mean, you know, hey, who doesn't love horror movie previews? Oh, geez, I don't know. I don't remember what the previews were. There was uh, there's a preview for uh, oh, heaven knows what, some sort of uh, real life drug drama memoir biopic written and directed based on the book by the person who also stars as herself in it. Something like that seemed to be the deal. Looked like a Harmony Korine sort of uh, uh, okay. story, but not Harmony Korine as far as I know. So there's that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. We had a uh, Poltergeist. Uh, oh, no, there was. for uh, We came in yeah. a little bit late on the, on the first preview, so I didn't realize it was actually a remake of Poltergeist. At first, I was just assuming it was, you know. Oh, did you miss the part of the trailer where the guy's just like, you've got... A poltergeist. Well, I think I think I heard that, but I I, I hadn't like really been thinking about it. I was like, oh, it's a movie that involves poltergeists. Okay, and then at the end, oh no, it's poltergeist. Okay. Oh, also Ted too. So you know that Ugh. that looks really great. Um, but yes, it follows. It follows <laughs> the actual the actual movie we saw. Uh, this is this is uh, basically brand new or. Getting distribution was, widely brand new. Yeah, it just got it just got distribution in. Uh, it was in limited release. It, it came out in Cannes. Cannes is it? It's Cannes. It's Cannes the festival. Yeah, it's Cannes. It's Cannes. Yeah, so right, it came out in last May in Cannes, and then it just got. And then I think it had a limited release after that, and then I think it got a wider release just last month. Um, yeah, May seventeenth. It was was released theatrically in France. Oh, no, it's on February 4th. Yeah, wide release was released, limited release. Oh, no, no, it still has a real limited release. 
Huh. How about that? Nope, I'm wrong. Uh, uh, <laughs> God damn it. This is the fascinating trivia, uh, the, the hard-bitten, no-compromising fact explosion that people tune into the show for. Our, I, yeah, our grasp of the fine details of the movie business really put everything that we talk about into you know, context. Uh, I believe this was shot with a, uh, with a camera, um, sometimes on a set, but sometimes on location. Uh, there were actors in it. Yes. Um, there must have been sound, right? There must think, have been somebody recording sound. I, I, feel like I, re- I feel like I remember hearing some sounds yeah. during the film, so yes. Um, the uh. soundtrack to this movie uh, is is very, very uh, John Carpenter, John Carpentery. Like, at points, it's almost on the nose, like the Halloween soundtrack. But uh, the guy that did it, he uh, records under the name Disasterpiece. Yes. And, um, he, before this, he did Chiptune, right? I don't so know. He I don't, did, he, I, I have like like four or five years ago. Jesus, I, I got like a chip tune album of his, and it was pretty great. Although you know, I can only stand so much chip tune. Um, and then he did the soundtrack to Fez. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah all I know is the soundtrack was fucking great. That yeah, I like. Yeah. I, I I think I I wrote down notes in the dark in a in a small notebook just because like you know I'm not going to bring my laptop uh, to a movie theater, and and I I think. At first, like I wrote synth soundtrack on the first page of notes because it's like, yeah, the soundtrack, and then uh, and then later I wrote just like as big as I could. This fucking soundtrack was uh, one of my key takeaways. Yeah, no, I really, I really liked the music in the film. I thought it was fantastic, uh, uh, and yeah, it was sort never of like too over the top, even when it was like on the nose, which, yeah. which was nice. Like, um, and. Yeah, yeah, it was it it was inspired, honestly. Like I found the soundtrack to be inspired even if it was trying to be a an homage that was a very very clear homage. Yeah. Like he was I- not trying to be like this is, you know, original music. Well, I mean it is original music but a disaster piece, but it was very clearly like I I am wearing my influences on my sleeve, but I'm also doing it really well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I I I Honestly, I, I like that John Carpenter has done the music he's done, but I liked this as an homage to John Carpenter probably better than I liked any of the actual <laughs> John Carpenter soundtracks. Just because it felt it felt it, it felt more solid, it felt more really confident as uh, a finished product musically rather than oh, and I think I'll do the music for my movie too, which is yeah, yeah, that's how I've always thing. felt like, a little bit more about Carpenter's. Yeah, no, no offense at all to Carpenter's ability to compose music, but this was done by like a professional musician. Yeah. Um, and you know, not not that Carpenter's soundtracks are like an afterthought, but at the same time, he's he's a filmmaker first. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. So that's the um, that's the soundtrack. Yeah. No, it's it's really great. There's it it does some fun stuff. There's a, a great little five four riff at one point during the driving through the bad neighborhood of Detroit uh, scene. We get somewhere in the middle of the film. Uh, yeah, no, great soundtrack, fantastic soundtrack. Uh, I really liked it. I, I think I will try and acquire it. Um, but uh, but I guess we could talk about the rest of the film. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so okay. So so this film, you 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 IM'd me yesterday uh, evening to say, oh man, this one is going to be a tough episode. Uh, and then I had to say, I have not watched it yet. Shut up. <laughs> um, but you went into this blind. Uh, yep. I, I went to this basically blind too. I think. I mean, I went to this as blind as much as like 
the most I've heard about it is like this. It's it's a sexually transmitted monster or, or something yeah. along those lines. That is as much as I knew about this movie. Yeah, and I, I had the, the the same level of uh, knowledge. I think uh, I, I went and saw it with with Angela, my wife, uh, and I think she had read a little bit about it. And, and so yeah, the whole like, idea of a sexually transmitted uh, haunting or possession uh, was about all I had to go with. Um, and yeah, I was I was really I was surprised by how uh oh jeez. I we we talked about this a bunch last night actually. We 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 saw the film and then we went and uh, got a got a beer and some food and talked about it some more, but I still don't feel like I have a coherent pitch for how I feel about the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I very much liked it. Um it's it's just it is it is a difficult movie and it, and it's weird because like the first movie I want to compare this to that we've done before is House of the Devil, like yeah. and and where House of the Devil is just not hollow but just sort of sparse and what you see is what you get and there's not a lot of like depth to it it's just what what's going on on the screen and like the the sense of dread this movie is sort of the opposite where it is just dense dense, just incredibly dense with, like, feelings and emotions and really complex sort of character motivations and a really, really, like, tough, that I think might be tough to talk about, just discussion of sex and sort of, I mean, in some ways consent, but in some ways not... Well, it, it, uh, it, it's yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because it would have been so easy for the movie to sort of uh, frame itself directly around like overt rape as yeah, part of plot and mechanics, and it never really does that. I mean, there's a ton of I stuff mean, it, that plays it, it, into that idea, but there's there's yeah. never the and now here's someone you know pulls out a knife and rapes someone at knife point to to deal with this situation sort of thing. It's all much more involved in sort of motivation and, and like non disclosure. Uh, yeah, as much as anything is is sort of the the theme. Where, where consent issues come into it. Yeah, and I mean, all, like, there is a lot of, there is, I mean, there's not a lot of, but there's, there's, there's a amount of sex in this movie, and it's all, it, it's all just very, very clearly consensual sex, but then it's like, that's when the questions start. It's like, how much consensual is it, is it if you find yourself compelled to do it because otherwise you'll die, or, you know, how, what, what, um, what do you call it? Yeah, because I mean, they they sort of avoid the the whole like sexual assault thing by just it's set up as like one of those you know like this young girl Jay, um, and you know everybody's in this movie is roughly a teenager. She goes on a date with like a slightly older guy. He's twenty one, as the movie makes clear. Um, and then they they have sex. They just have clearly completely consensual sex, and then. Like, as they're hanging out after, he chloroforms her. And I think it was really, really smart of the director to have, like, the consensual sex scene in right before that. Because it just makes that moment, like, that much stranger. And also just sort of removes the fear of, like, peril. Like, that specific kind of peril from the movie. So that, like, the dread that you're experiencing through this is not the dread of that necessarily the whole time. It's something very different, but still in, like, the same sphere. Yeah. Yeah, it manages to go for the sort of, like, the the weird sort of terror of sudden betrayal without necessarily tying that directly into the idea 
of of sexual assault and stealth. It, it, it becomes proximal to that instead. Uh, and to the extent that there is essentially an assault uh, involving the sex here, it it is one that is sort of secondary to the sex itself, um, but is directly tied to that because of the nature of this weird sexually transmitted haunting thing. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it is it is really, and I I I think I basically agree with you. I'm glad that they took it in that direction and sort of said, okay, well, there's the people like to have sex, and then there's this bad thing going on, rather than saying, hey. Let's all feel really bad about, uh, you know, making the mistake of wanting to have sex in the first place, which is, I think, what it's easy to do with sort of like a cautionary tale tied to, uh, you know, uh, oops, you shouldn't have wanted to go have sex with a guy. And that's that's such a classic yeah. horror trope, obviously, uh, you know, whether whether actually moralistically or just sort of cluelessly or... Uh, sardonically so many horror films treat uh, especially historically have treated sex as sort of like uh, endemic to bad things happening it's, you know it, yeah, to I the mean, point like where it's the, obviously the, such a trope yeah I mean in, in Scream like they, they they outline it you know just exactly it's like if you have had sex you will die and it, it that movie takes that idea and first instead of making it just like a like instead of making like the death because you had sex like a moral thing, it's where you know it's just you know Jason or or well not Freddy but I guess yeah Jason would be he's a big one that that just you know kills the 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 teenagers having sex somewhere yeah and instead of like having that be like a, oh you make the connection sort of thing where it's it's sort of implied it's a morality thing in this movie it's the act itself and the the emotions behind the act or or anything like that does not matter at all. Yeah, um, it's it's just the very act of inter- intercourse itself that that gets you there, and I think by doing that, it sort of it it doesn't remove like ideas of like morality surrounding sex, but it just completely takes a different approach to it entirely, where there's nothing inherently wrong with the act itself, and at times people have to have sex to save themselves, but by doing that, they're also dooming other people, and so yeah. it just gets that it, it it gets complicated. It's like it, it's it's exactly as if if you know that Jason is going to kill you if you have sex, but if you you know you can distract him by having sex with somebody else and setting them up as the victim. That's exactly how this works. Yeah. Well, and um, it's you know there, there's a really obvious parallel here to The Ring, uh, right? But it's interesting that this movie accelerates that whole thing so much like the ring stretches out the question of being doomed for you know to die in seven days and and that the one iteration of that is essentially the the actual narrative of the film with a little bit on either end uh to deal with the idea of transmission um whereas this you know the the narrative tackles it much more directly as sort of an ongoing sort of tactical negotiation you know and 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 an attempt to manage the situation and and most of the deaths in this movie are implied and well they're sort of implied they're they're an open question whether there's a lot of people in this movie that there's an open question as to whether they die or not but if they die they definitely died off screen yeah um and and so yeah the body count is just it's higher than it seems and yet you know we only really are brought to care about the people that we're following which well, is yeah, like and, the five teens yeah and it's it's an interesting well okay actually I, I i think i see where you're going and i kind of want to talk about that um with the idea of the the guys in the boat uh the the prostitutes that paul drives past 
Uh, yeah, the, 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 the implication that Greg's that, on a date with. Yeah, so so there's this implication that there's people who may have been transmitted to and then promptly got themselves killed, but we never heard about it. Um, and I think it's interesting that that stuff is left implied because I don't think that there is. I don't think there's a straight one way or the read on any of that either. Like, I don't think no. it's clear that any of those people ever did get transmitted. Like, you know, I, Greg was enough of kind of a sort of disaffected skis in some ways. It's not hard to believe him saying, oh, well, yeah, I'll go fuck someone else too. And I don't believe in this, but as long as it's a thing that I don't believe in, someone else yeah, can, with, you know, deal with, with it. With Jay and Paul, it's a lot more ambiguous just because you don't know whether they could have not just maybe – a brought themselves to just like have sex with these strangers, and B effectively kill these people. Yeah, by yeah. doing so. And that's the interesting thing because yeah, it, it, it you know it never stops being a pretty profound moral decision. Again, independent of the sex itself, and it's interesting how they 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 exist there as parallel issues because Jay, uh, you know, yeah, it's a two step process. It's like, do I? just outright go have exploitative sex with a stranger uh, to to solve a problem I'm dealing with? And do I make the decision to uh, essentially put a stranger in direct terrifying mortal danger as potentially only a very short-term solution to my problem anyway? And yeah, Which so is exactly what was done to her. Yeah. Yeah, which... With, yeah, with, with Jeff slash Hugh. Yeah, he was very much... And he was very tactically doing so. Uh, trying to sort of get the problem off his back, at least for some amount of time, and and seeming to want to really try and pay it forward, or not pay it forward, play it forward. I don't know. Uh, by setting her up to really know what the situation is, in hopes that she would, you know, then be a relatively canny uh, vector and maybe you know continue the process. Yeah, I think maybe I'm going to say ninety percent of what we know about you know it. The monster's never named. Um, you know, it's, but whatever we know about it is presented in the scene where after uh, Jeff slash Hugh chloroforms her, she uh, she wakes up in like it looked like an abandoned parking lot, I guess, like with a yeah, uh, like, like a, a parking, parking structure, structure or something, and she's tied into a wheelchair. Um, which I don't know. You think that's uh, that's an allusion to uh, Manhunter slash Red Dragon? I that that's the only horror uh, thing that I can think of. Maybe where... I mean. I, well, like, like either way, there's the dis- yeah, I, 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 yeah, maybe, maybe. It, yeah, it, so, it's, it's a light one because there's not really anything else to tie into that. But yeah, so she's tied. Oh, and so uh, one other thing: it's uh, when when he's when uh, Jeff Slash was chloroforming her, you can see that he is in pain. Like he he is not doing that because he wants to, and he clearly regrets his actions. But he also has, like, complete assurance that he's doing it. He, he doesn't waver even a little bit, even as he's basically crying as he does it. Yeah, he, he's uh, definitely not portrayed nice as, uh, as like, a like, like, like a sociopath or anything. Like, he's, he's yeah. clearly not intended to be uh, just some sort of dead-eyed guy doing a thing because, like, well, you know, it's not like it's people or something. Yeah, he, this, is, this is a guy who is resolved to do this thing that he knows is, is terrible because he thinks it's... Uh, less bad of an outcome for him than just getting himself killed by some freaky ghost. Right. And yeah, that's the thing. Like if he had, you know, had sex with her and none of that happened, didn't tell her that wouldn't have helped him. It only works like it only works well if the other, if the person that you've had sex with to like transmit the monster to 
is fully aware of what's yeah, going on. That's the only way they could actually, buy you some time. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not an effective buffer if they just get themselves murdered, you know, 10 minutes later yeah. or the next day. Um, yeah, no, it's a... Uh, I I, I, I want to talk about the film as a film, and I also want to talk about solving the math problems presented by the <laughs> film, and I'm going to try and put off the math problems for now because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about about the film itself, but it's, it's interesting mechanically as a horror film. It offers a lot more pretty explicit, you know, assumptions on how you could try and manage a supernatural situation yeah. uh, than I think we usually get with movie monsters who behave in a somewhat, you know, fantastical and irrational way. This is a surprisingly deliberative and sort of deterministic horror movie monster. So so I, I have some ideas that we can discuss later. <laughs> yeah, like there's there's very, very explicit rules that the monster follows, although we don't know all of them. It 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 works you know I, I read a lot like of reviews and like stuff about this movie and and like the one thing that i saw like almost across all the reviews was that like this it, it's a dream logic movie like you know um like it, like like phantasm you know things things have rules but they're not going to necessarily be rules that make sense to you but if you allow yourself to just be like okay you know there's an internal logic to this movie it works a lot better yeah and, and and yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Uh, of sort of like the dreaminess, um, there's the, there's there's stuff in the film that definitely sells some of that sort of like sort of a dreamy feel to it. Uh, I mean, the soundtrack uh, is great there. You know, in, in part, like it, it really has a sort of, especially in the more downturn moments and the sort of more uh, mellow and uh, melodramatic moments. You know, there's there's a real sort of romantic feel to the soundtrack. There's a lot of shots in uh, non-ghosty portions of the film that have a sort of hazy, dusty, blown-out look to them, like a lot of sort of almost overexposed-feeling internal shots with with lights sort of flooding the the camera with a little bit of extra uh, glow. Um, the, 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 the pacing and the frequent wordlessness, you know, all of that stuff sort of plays into that that feeling that I think is really interesting because it's... It's the sort of thing that in a lot of more traditional, like like slasher films, for example, you'd only see that as the big fake out before a terrible thing. Uh, whereas in this film, like you know, it was much more sort of a wandering mood from scene to scene, and there was no like by the time I settled in the film, I had stopped expecting big jump scares, and there really weren't a whole lot of big jump scares. You know, it yeah. you usually had a reasonable amount of warning when something was going to go wrong. And the film wasn't usually bullshitting about that either. Like, you know, whenever there was an approach of a monster, uh, approach of the ghost thing, usually it got played pretty slow. Like, as a viewer, you got to see it long before there was a, oh, my God. And half the time the characters saw it, too. And, you know, it's just that slow advancement of sort of dread and panic rather than suddenly Jason pops out with an axe or something like that. Right. Um there was Although like, there were like a couple of good jump scares in this movie, though the um, the scene where they're they're all uh, sleeping over at Jay and Kelly's house, um, and you know this is at the point where like the, there's been like the smashing noise, and I think Jay had already seen it, or yeah, I think Jay knew that it was in the house, and this was before everybody had like completely believed her that something was going on, and so Jay, Kelly, and Paul are you know all in I think one of the bedrooms and there's a knocking 
and they're asking who it is, and it's Yara, which is you know the 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 the, the third girl. Um, and the, then they nerd. Open the... Was she a nerd. You can tell she's a nerd because she reads Dostoevsky and wears glasses. It, I, like I think... I, like I'm, I'm saying I'm saying nerd self consciously because it, it seems like yeah. it fits some of that. Like tropism. Oh, this is the this is the Velma because you know you've got the glasses and you've got the yeah. reading you know Russian novels. That's the thing. Um, she fits that, but she also kind of like fits like the hipster trope stuff, like yeah. too that like like the cool guy sort of thing. She she hits both of those things, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah. Um. But yeah, yeah. So they open the door, and then you just see her like framed in the door, and she's just like, "What? It it's me." And then you see, and then you immediately switch to Jay's perspective, where like an enormous man, like yeah, six and a half feet tall, her. yeah, lurches out behind her, and then just sort of makes his way between her and the door towards Jay. And I mean, that was fucking that was and that, that, that was that good. Was, that was well shot too, because like they 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 blocked that such that he was there, he was moving in, but we never see on camera him do anything like phasing through anybody. So he's just sort of like opportunistly moving in behind uh, Yara without apparently touching her and yeah and then we cut to jay bugging the fuck out before we have to even deal with the question of would they bump into each other which is interesting that the film later gets to that point of establishing the sort of corporeal nature of this thing yeah uh, it's um it's it's real it is absolutely real but it's invisible to everybody that hasn't been infected by it but it's not like you know a like a a a, a psychological thing that's in her head that she sees stalking her like this is like a flesh and blood monster yeah, which I thought was a was um, was was a good choice on their part again. Or at least it's you know it's it's interesting because it, it it stays sort of ambiguous. It it behaves like a flesh and blood monster that just happens to be invincible, but but also extremely durable. Like it gets killed, you know, for a pretty meaningful sense of the world. Yeah. Word a couple times with like you know shot to the head. Uh, it's I think it's heavily I, implied that it's it's vulnerable but not killable. Yeah, like you or can, at least you not can, by a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, you you can certainly slow it down with a, a yeah. gun to the head and like you know kill it for a second, but then we see it get back up uh, earlier in the film when they're out by the I guess the lake shore, um, and then and then later in the film you know they shoot it in the pool and there's a whole lot of blood and no yeah. hand reaching up out of the water or anything but it's implied that it's still very much there and yeah. and following jay and paul at the end of the film uh or is that it you know uh so yeah no it, it, again with like you know this is a fairly concrete uh villain for a supernatural you know horror story you know we we, we can actually see this thing it can be touched uh, it seems to be very powerful it seems to be very uh very durable even if you can temporarily slow it down but it's still the fact that it's there is is, is yeah, there's thing. um I I I got like part of a feel of it reminded me of uh, the T one thousand Terminator two where it's just it's not necessarily like it's it, it it's not like some sort of you know fast like teleporting around appearing in your closet sort of thing it's it's plotting and it's out to get you but it's unstoppable. Yeah, and and that, that that's a great that's a great fucking setup for a villain too because if yeah. you know it's slow then you can really build expectations around its, you know, sort of slow but inevitable approach. You know, you, you're never going to have the the thing jumping out of the ceiling or whatever necessarily. I mean, I guess in theory it could do that. But generally speaking, this thing seems to just, like, close in. And it yeah, just seems not to subtle. not want to ever... Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, it's got no guile, particularly, it doesn't seem like. It like just, the, you know... 
it's figured out that you can bust into a house by breaking open the window and does that twice because it can't seem to go through doors. Well, it, it kicked through a door at one point at the at the at the lake shore. Well, it can't seem to open was. doors. But yeah, it doesn't seem to yeah, it doesn't seem to really understand that. I would I, I would presume if I had to guess that under duress it would start trying harder to like break through a, a wooden door or a wall. Uh, but yeah, it certainly seems to prefer to just take a path of less resistance when available and uh, just go through a window with a rock or whatever. Um, but yeah, again, it's it's weird. It's it, it, it's interesting to be able to sort of dig into this stuff and you know sort of say, well, we have this basic observable evidence from which we can draw these reasonable assumptions about you know the behavior of this thing. Um, it's 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 surprisingly concrete in that sense compared to like how do you deal with Freddy Krueger? You know, right. he's he's an unstoppable you know villain who lives inside your dreams if you ever sleep until that bit at the end of the film where someone figures out some way to defeat him, but they didn't really defeat him, and then we get another movie, and yeah, you know, it's it's a different it's a different sort of feel for a monster. But but the the inevitability I really liked because they they were able to do a lot of scenes where you were just sitting and watching and you weren't waiting for the fuck you jump cut that comes from a different part of the screen from where your expectation is. You're just staring right where Jay's staring. You know, you're really there with the perspective character or perspective characters watching for the exact same slow thing that's not even going to happen fast if it does happen. Like and it's gonna it's gonna ease into frame and you're gonna have to watch it ease yeah. into frame. And there's like there's a lot of wide shots, there's a lot of pans, and there's a lot of people walking in the background because it's a movie, and yet they somehow like you you never you may have seen the monster more times than you think you have because you're never quite sure when you're looking from Jay's perspective. And so you're never quite sure when like the person that's just walking, which is, you know, it's it's the opposite of being still, it's it's the other thing you can do when you're on screen. Um, and yet you never know what it is. And they even, I mean, I'm not going to say they lampshaded it. They, they took advantage of it for like a brief moment of levity, which I liked, um, when they're all sitting in the, I think in the, in the, in the park or like, yeah, sitting around the park with, with, yeah, Jeff or Jeff slash Hugh, they're sitting around on like, yeah, school campus and a a soccer player wanders by. And it's weird how, um, it's, you know, it's like a tense scene, but it's weird how like not revengey they are. Um, where, you know, they, they, they didn't just, like, take him out and just beat the crap out of him. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they sat him down. They're like, we need you to tell us everything you know about this. Because yeah. clearly he had been able to avoid it for some time, and he had strategies like the abandoned house that he lived in that they found had, you know, uh, like early warning uh, cans tied to rope from the window so he would know yeah. that it was coming in. Um, and yes, yeah, so like the whole time that, you know, they're having this conversation and you see this girl in the background just walking towards the camera and, and, you know, the, the whole time they're talking, she's getting closer and closer and closer and Jeff is getting more and more nervous. And then, you know, she gets really close and he's just like, you know, it could be anyone like, guys, do you see that girl? And she passes really close to them and then turns and they're all like, yeah, we see her. And, and I thought that was just, it was funny. It was definitely, it was, and it was funny. It was meant to be funny, but it also is one of those things that, um, that really cements how paranoid this thing makes you. Yeah. Because it it could be literally anybody that's walking toward you. Yeah. And it, and yeah, you, it, and you have no way to distinguish it from not it except by asking somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. Which is which is a really interesting. It it forces that 
engagement with this idea on you in a way that's got to be, you know, it would be very isolating because, you know, presuming you don't have, you know, a group of friends who are like totally willing to support your, hey, can you see this invisible person without talking to you about, you know, maybe a voluntary commitment situation, uh, you know, if you're really in this by yourself, which generally speaking, you're going to be, yeah, that's how do you casually reaffirm with someone that you're not about to be murdered by a terrifying ghost, you know, if it's taking the form of, uh, something not so unusual. Uh, so yeah, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing about the, the, the film's handling and, and the way it sets up that, that sort of internal, uh, paranoia dynamic. Um, there was a, geez, what was I just thinking? There was, I, I wanted to say one thing you talked about the, 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 how there's a lot of complicated character motivations, uh, earlier, uh, and, and, and the way the film plays out, it's, it's really interesting because we don't get any big sort of declarations of personal narrative from the characters in the film. You know, we really do watch them despite the fact that it's unambiguously a horror film the whole time. And there's a bunch of situations where they're dealing with a murderous ghost and fleeing from it. Uh, it's still just sort of like mostly a bunch of kids sort of bumbling around and, having very, you know, internal, uh, experiences. Like there is a lot of that, the, that wordlessness I mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a lot of times when we sort of just watch them sort of thinking and being down or not sort down. And, and, and there's this, there's this sense of them very much just sort of being people rather than filling uh, a specific, you know, story role and, you know, tossing out exposition that I like about the film. It, I think it's part of what makes it, yeah work better than if it had been more of like a, you know, taut thriller. Like, like, I mean, I liked, I, I liked the ring a lot, but the ring had much more of that. Hey, we're performing a detective story and we're going to exposit a bit about what we see. Uh, I, I think in the structures, like it's just a slightly different, you know, way to approach a film like that. And I liked that with the ring. I still got to rewatch the American one sometime. Cause, cause I really think I would enjoy watching that again. Um, but you know, it, it the, it's almost a little bit more procedural by comparison, whereas this feels so much more like, uh, it's just, I don't know, like vignettes. It feels much yeah. more like just like, you know, scenes from a haunting. Yeah. Time in this movie is not clear. You know, you, you, sometimes people wake up from going to sleep. Sometimes, you know, like it, it, it's clearly like some time has passed between things. But it's not you like I don't know whether this took place over like a week, a month, you know, two days, three days. Yeah. Um, you know, well, like when they're when they're hiding out at the pool, we have no idea how long they've been there. They could have been there like several days. Yeah. Because um, they brought like a bunch of supplies with them. Yeah, and and it, it's interesting. It it works in this case because nothing in the film really depends on that time scale in the short term. You know, nothing they do is a long-term solution for anything. So it's all, right. you can give yourself some time by making some distance, but then eventually it's going to be a problem. You're going to have to move again. You know, there's that, that inevitability makes it not really matter. All that matters is that they're trying short-term stuff and then the short-term is up and then it's time to deal with it again. Uh, which, I mean, if it, as, as some sort of metaphorical take on dealing with, you know, a uh, chronic, you know, illness or, uh, you know, recurring, uh, you know, emotional or mental, uh, 
issues, you know, that kind of makes sense. Cause like, if it's not something that's just like, oops, I sprained my ankle, but now it's better. Now that's done. It's like, no, this is something you're carrying around with you. This is something you don't really get away from. Uh, then it doesn't really matter if you get away from it for a couple of days because then once it comes back, you're not like, yeah, but those two days it was gone, so everything's great. You're like, no, I'm still dealing with this. This is just as bad as it's always been. And um, and yeah, that that's the thing. It's not matter when it when it finds you again. It 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 they 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 did a good job of not giving the the you know it any sort of emotional um what do you call it emotional motivation. It it's just like pure you know, instinctual drive. Yeah. And, yeah and it's I not going to come was... after you harder because you got away for a little bit. It's just, it's just constantly doing the same plotting yeah. thing. It's constantly doing like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's an, 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 un, unpersuadable, unmanipulable, generally speaking, uh, you know, force of nature. Um, I the 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 dreaminess, the sort of odd feeling of the movie. One thing that Angela uh, argued that I hadn't really gotten this feeling, but I, I kind of like the stuff she uh, brought up about it is you know the possibility that you could look at this as being sort of in some sort of alternate or collapsed reality uh, because of a lot of the temporal stuff in the film. Um, not 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 how not the time between scenes, but the presence of a really wide variety of sort of eras of cultural signifiers that all sort of show up as a mishmash in the film. Right. Um, which there's, you know, there's, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of sort of eighties feel to some of the decision-making in the art direction of the film. The, the soundtrack, obviously we've talked about already feels a lot like an eighties sort of carpenter synth soundtrack. The, the fashion stuff is all sort of all over the place. It, it could be everything from just straight up sort of hipsterism to just idiosyncratic choices. I think, I mean, I, I honestly, I think that in, in 20 years, this move, the fashion in this movie is going to be as obvious, like mid 2010s as scream is really, really obviously 1996. Yeah. That I, that is my take on it just because of, and I, I think it's the, the fact that denim and, and Doc Martens and stuff are getting like, rather popular with teenagers right now just sort of works really well because that would be like that late 70s early 80s thing um you know you you would also see a lot of denim and and acid acid wash stuff and, and so on um but yeah yeah there's there, there's a mix of uh car stuff in this too i mean yeah. we, we see some modern cars but we also yeah. see some some older cars. There's like you know what is it, Greg's uh, station wagon? Yeah, and, th- and this uh, takes place in Detroit, and, which I think is um, yeah, which which, yeah. which makes it. it, it, it I, I was thinking like it's. I don't really know Detroit, you know. I mean, I, I know of it, and I I know its history as you know traditional manufacturing base for for automotive stuff in the U.S. Uh, the collapse of that over the last several decades, the the collapse of Detroit itself, the fact that it's a city that has seen a huge amount of, of downturn and uh, and has been sort of just economically devastated in a lot of ways, uh, even though there's still also a ton of people who live there, obviously. Um, but like it's it's a very it's a very broad, shallow uh, understanding that I have of the city culturally. And one of the things I'm kind of curious about the film that I wish I had a better handle on was how much of some of the stuff in the film is really kind of just about Detroit versus maybe just being set in Detroit because that's, you know, how they decided to do this story. 
Um, yeah, there's a brief bit of exposition by, like, Yara all the way at the end that is, it's spoken dialogue, but it's also, like, a uh, voiceover sort of thing, where she talks about going past Ape Mile, where, like, the suburbs are separated from, like, the, the blighted urban part. And, yeah, I, I'm wondering, like, if that whole thing just made more sense to somebody um, from, like, around there, where, like, I understand there being, you know, a... a a point where one neighborhood transforms into the other, but I, I think there's like yeah a bunch of cultural significance to 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 that and to like a bunch of this movie that I missed. Um, but at the same time, like a bunch that is sort of universal and yet you know type you know typified by their use of uh, like the director's use of Detroit, which I, th- I think was great. Yeah, I mean like, there, there's 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 some basic you know obvious notes of sort of wrong side of the track. Uh, classism stuff in there that you know definitely universalizes uh independent of of detroit specifically but yeah i I am curious about that um but yeah you so you've got cars there there are a couple older cars in here when they go to the pool and they set up their electro trap which i liked a bunch of things about that uh whole thing uh but one thing i hadn't really like i noticed the individual stuff they were laying out but i didn't know this trend a whole lot of that stuff is kind of older too which yeah. also has sort of like a weird feeling of you know this is this is like like sixties seventies eighties technology you've got but there's not a bunch of like new cheap ass clock radios or whatever uh, yeah which yeah is it was all like thing. old lamps there was like a very deliberate close up of like an electric typewriter or word processor yeah yeah there's a couple of like selectrics in there and shit um, the 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 movie that uh, Jay goes to see with Hugh slash Jeff. Um, early on, uh, it's, you know, an old, like, Cary Grant film, and there's yep. a guy playing uh, the organ ahead of time. And, yeah, and the movie a, uh... in no way is, I, I don't feel like the movie in any way established whether this was supposed to be a weird or quirky thing, or if this was just the movies they go to see. Which, again, like, is there, you know, do, can you read sort of a temporal unmooring of things with all these different, you know, not explicitly explained, you know, elections of different eras... Uh, yeah, coming it, all into place in one film, in one narrative. I think, yeah, yeah, and and they're often watching old science fiction and horror films. Like yeah, Black that's a big recurring ones. thing. Yeah, and I think, and they're not I, watching MST three K; they're just watching the films themselves. Yeah, know? yeah, and, and 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 I think there's like I, that's in in a lot of ways just a um, not an allusion to, but sort of like a reaction to Scream, where in Scream. They had, you know, they were always constantly mentioning, like, these classic, like, good horror movies and, and how, like, the, the things from those horror movies, like, you know, are are in their lives, especially now that there's a killer running around. And in this, they're just watching, like, like absurd, badly produced, you know, shitty special effects old horror movies, which I think was, you know, they that, that, that doesn't help them. You know, yeah. it's, it, this movie is sort of like it, it's the opposite of genre savvy, where they're not. No, nobody seems to be like particularly horror movie dumb in this, except for the inevitable, like the. It's like, oh, you know, the monster's coming. There's no monster, and then the monster shows up. Um, there's a little bit of that, but um, you know, I, I'll actually talk about that later. But um, yeah, the, the 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 nothing helps them in this. You know, there there's adults, but they're not there. They have, like, you know, some experience with what they're experiencing, but it's not in any way useful. It's There's, like, that feeling of alienation from everything except each other uh, in this movie. Um, 
that that I think is in a lot of ways just a reaction to to just like these incredibly genre savvy protagonists who know like everything the killer is going to do before he does it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the 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 poem. Uh, oh, it's sort of a rock. random tangent, but yeah, the, the the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is another bit of literature that gets conspicuously tossed into the film. Uh, along with uh, Yara's, uh, and I, yeah, I think that was a re- it, it, it. It's maybe like about a stanza and a half, and in that stanza and a half is the part where he talks about actually going on a date. Which is, I mean, if you haven't read the poem, it's about this. Would you say like Nebish man? I guess just a, just a very hesitant, like aging guy who who is trepidant and and wants intimacy but can't seem to get it because he's just not willing to put himself out and i mean it's that's that's sort of like a really really broad strokes of it sure um but yeah like the the parts of the poem that are being read in this movie and usually this kind of stuff seems super hackneyed to me and the parts where they read excerpts from the idiot did feel super hackneyed to me but specifically the parts of proof rock that they read uh mentioned a going on a date and like a, you know expecting or looking forward to physical intimacy and then b growing older and dying yeah and which well, are two like super big themes of the movie um yeah the 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 should i after tea and cakes and ice have the strength to force the moment to its crisis is is a, a great little literary linchpin to throw in to some of the themes that resonate throughout the movie. Um, and yeah, the, the, the idea of growing old and, 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 and fear of death is in here. And it also very much comes in. There's that final quote, uh, in the movie that, uh, Yara reads about, uh, the approaching of death and, and the knowledge that, you know, your soul will leave your body and you will be human no more. And did they, did they reference the line though? I've seen my head grown slightly brawled, brought in upon a platter. Uh, I, th- I, that, I think it must have been in there. I that's in there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I've seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, which is just two very, very uh, – I mean, though, those are some horror movie lines. That's, well, yeah, you know, and, and they, I think they get as far as like and, – and, you know, we're fairly early in the, the segment that they do by the time Jay starts noticing uh, the person approaching from outside. Um, and 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 so they, they go farther with it and they get as far as uh, – uh, to say I am Lazarus come from the dead I think is about when they're sort of climaxing that, that scene with the reading oh yeah uh, I think is that when they zoom in on like the old woman uh, it, or it when may they be, bring yeah. her into like sharp focus yeah when, when he says I'm Lazarus when she says I'm Lazarus back from the dead yeah there's a lot of stuff in this film that I'd like to like re-watch the film looking for yeah um, which I'll probably try and do at some point uh, just because to, to look closer at how they timed some of this stuff instead of just trying to take it in all at once and take notes and, and follow the the story and, and yeah, I, I just on. i I brought a notebook to the theater and then I realized that a my handwriting is bad enough with the lights <laughs> on and b like I was going to definitely miss parts of this movie distracted by you know having to try to take the notes and I spent nine dollars god damn it yeah thirteen if you count the enormous diet coke <laughs> uh there's a th- I think a conspicuous avoidance of product placement in this film, it seemed like. In, Unless in that's of, like a Detroit era. Like, they're, they're all constantly drinking soda of some sort of brand that I've never seen before. And either it's a fake brand to avoid product placement, or it's like a, he's giving a shout-out to, like, a local domestic soda. Yeah. 
there was uh, yeah, it, and it's not impossible. It could have been like a specific brand of local thing. Uh, the playpen magazines, uh, which uh, yeah. I, I believe is not a real uh, porno magazine. I think it is. It's just defunct. Is it? Um, let me see. Uh, nope, it's fictional. So there you go. It is uh, a fictional. It's under the list of fictional magazines in uh, <laughs> Wikipedia. Good old Wikipedia. And um, yeah, apparently it, it's it's appeared in a lot of different things. Uh, Bones, Married with Children, Family Guy, that '70s show. Uh, apparently, it's it's like one of those stock Hollywood things, I guess. Yeah. Playpen magazine. Uh, um, there's a there was a oh jeez, what was it? I, I like I liked the. I, I'm apparently just free associating at this point for the moment, but there was the scene where uh, Jay drives off the road because she almost hits a truck and she turns and she crashes and she crashes in a cornfield, cornfield which like was... yeah nothing nothing to do there other than oh hey corn right children of the corn horror movies is about the entirety of my thoughts on the subject but and I and it's had also that a gorgeous shot of like this old station wagon like driven and crashed into a cornfield yeah. Um, like as it just like slowly zooms out, and then there was another shot of the car coming in like on a tree line road, which was also like in it, it's it's one of those like horror movie idyllic shots where if there wasn't the John Carpenter soundtrack, it'd be like <laughs> a uh, you know this idyllic scene of you know youth time fall or spring, but with the music, it's just like well they're all gonna die in this scenic vista. Yep. Um, there were there were there were bits of uh, the shooting in this in particular that that made me think a little bit of Kubrick and a little bit of of The Shining, um, not not like big strong, like like it didn't feel like they were aping anything, but just like a little bit of the feel. Um, there was like a bunch of one point perspective shots. On this. Yeah, yeah, a bunch a of one point bunch. perspective, a bunch of symmetrical shots. There was, uh, you know, the the uh, the the blood spreading in the pool. Uh, near the end of the film, after they successfully, yeah. on the short term, shoot the the thing, mm-hmm. uh, and Jay goes to look in the pool, we get that great slow creep up over the edge of the pool yeah. that again is threatening to be a jump scare, but never does. And instead, what we get is another sort of slow creeping thing where she looks in the pool and we see her seeing this enormous pool of blood, just like an well, impossible th- pool of it's, blood. It's not... that. That's what actually I, I liked about it, is that it's not exactly like that. So you see her, like, creep up to the poolside, and what happens is, like, the they shot, like, the they got the thing into the water, and it, it avoids water, and so they got into the water, and then, by sheer fucking luck, Paul shoots the thing somewhere useful, because uh, it was dragging Jay down. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so she gets out, and she, she climbs up, and then you see, like, blood, like, you see, like, the blue pool, and then you see, like, blood approach her, and, like, there's, like, a split second where you're like, oh, man, they got it, because it's never, like, bled this heavily before. And then I think it's it might zoom out, or maybe it's just coming from the top, but slowly, like, the blood builds up to, like, an incredible amount of blood, like, far, far more than, like, a gunshot, whatever, or possibly more than there could be, like, in a body. Yeah. And it, like, it like cloudily overtakes the pool, and, like, that sense of relief definitely becomes a sense of dread, because, yeah, A, very there's menacing. no body, yeah. and, B, like, you have, like, you know, you have a sea of blood, basically. Yeah, this was, is an impossible thing happening here. And, yeah, that, that so that, that made me think of uh, the elevator scene in The Shining, you know, it's like oh yeah, yeah. The 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 slow moving cascade of an impossible amount of blood is just like it's a it's an effective thing that if handled differently would just be 
fucking ridiculous. I mean, you, you, I, I can imagine, and I'm sure I've seen, you know, a, a couple bad horror films where they just used way too much blood in a scene or something. But like, that's you know, it, it's different when it's like, ah, oh, you're overdoing it with the squibs, versus this is a literally terrifyingly impossible volume of thing happening here. You know, and, and something yeah, about it was the a very J horror moment. I thought. Where, like, that yeah. kind of, like, slow, silent, and, like, entirely visual, almost abstract shot is, like, a very J-horror-y thing. Um, I want to talk about the, because we've sort of mentioned this glancingly, but the there's a really conspicuous absence of parents in this film. Yeah, um, there's, you know, it's early on implied and then sort of cemented that Jay and Emily, her name's Emily, right? Her sister? Uh, maybe. Yeah, Jay and, Jay and Emily... Oh, Kelly, I'm sorry. Jay and Kelly's uh, mother is an alcoholic. Yeah. Or, like, a problem drinker of some kind. Because there's there's one scene where you see her, like, having breakfast with a friend. And this is, like, the only time, really, you see an adult in this movie speak. And she mentions something to her friend. And she's pouring um, Bailey's or some other sort of, like, liquor into her coffee. And then there's another scene where, like, everybody in the house is sleeping... And uh, the one, like, the shot of Jay and Kelly's mother sleeping, you see, like, one of her feet and the shoe's still on it. And then it sort of pans, like, it, there's, like, a crack in the door. And then it sort of pans away from her. And there's, like, an empty or mostly empty bottle of liquor and, like, a still-burning cigarette. And it's, you know, very, very clearly implied that she's passed out drunk. Yeah. Um, and then I think at one point Greg, when... Uh, when after Jeff slash Hugh drops uh, Jay off and and that scene by the way like hits every single note of like a, a sexual assault sort of thing where um, Paul and uh, Paul Yara and Emily are hanging out on the porch like um, playing what, do you know what they were playing they were playing they were playing uh, old maid I want to say it was or something it, similar to it you know yeah, it's like, it, whatever it was it didn't use playing cards they were playing some sort of like children's card game yeah. that used illustrated cards that yeah I've never yeah seen yeah no there's there's the, I, we had those when i was a kid uh, okay. it was a deck like an old made deck and it's just got a bunch of like pairs or or four of a kind of a bunch of different uh characters and then you're just making pairs of them and yeah. And, and they uh, were old cards too. Like uh, yeah. that, that that fits in with like the whole like when does not when does this movie take place because it's sort of clear when this movie takes place. But, but what is the yeah what is the yeah. nature of, of of time and 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 culture? Yeah, exactly. And um, you know Jeff's car pulls up, and then you do, they all like you know sort of look up and everything is happening on the driver's side, which is the opposite side, so you don't see anything. So there's you know there's fumbling. You, you assume that he's putting her body down on the ground, and then you hear him say, uh, just remember... Yeah, it was something about it, like, in just another piece of exposition. He's like, just remember, it, 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 it only walks, so you can run from it, or, or something like that. And then, you know, he squeals away, and then you see um, Jay there, and I think her wrists are still bound, and she's in her underwear. Yeah. Uh, you know, no shoes, and just, like, clearly, like, disturbed and in, in some way assaulted. And then, you know, the police pull up and, you know, the, the, you, you, so you see them find her. Then there's like a cut and you see from the windows of Greg's house, he's in there with, is it, is it just like some girl that he's in there with? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, don't, I didn't catch yeah, who it was. He's in there with just some girl and you see, and they're both like looking out the window cause there's cops outside and neighbors and he's just like, yeah, that family's really messed up Yeah, or, or something along those lines. Yeah. So you sort of get the idea that. 
at the very least, Jay and Kelly are, are you know, maybe not as far as neglected, but definitely not looked after um, in, in a satisfactory way. Well, yeah, and we, and we get the same implication with Greg, where, like, at some yeah. point, someone's like, uh, do you, you know, will your mom care? He's like, oh, you know, won't notice or, or something. Yeah. We don't know what is going on with Paul's family. I don't think we ever get any sort of yeah. insight there. Uh, we briefly meet Jeff's mom. She's she's uh, another one of the few examples of a parent appearing as an actual the parent and doing a parent type thing. And and she's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, Jeff, yeah. Do you want to come in? Um, and and, and that's that's a big reveal too because yeah. that's a moment where we see that the naked woman who was coming towards Jay when Jay first saw this thing when when Jeff had her kidnapped and tied to the wheelchair and was expositing uh that turns out to be who that was uh, is was, it yeah that was jeff's mom um, wait but that was i thought that was greg no no later greg gets killed by the the ghost looking like greg's mom oh but, but then two it was, different, oh, two different oh so okay yeah. so yeah that's right because the when when he's got uh jay tied up in the wheelchair and he's telling her he's in a way also like summoning it to himself to prove to her that it's real yeah and yeah it appears as a a naked woman just like totally nude and um yeah there's actually even a brief scene where jeff slash he's just like i'm just doing this to show you that it's real and then he shines the flashlight directly on the body and the light you know hits it and then he just sort of sco- scoots away with the wheelchair and then there's that scene that i just described yeah and he's um, so been, that's his mother okay yeah and, and makes, as yeah. he's talking about you know sometimes i think maybe it just takes the form of people you care about to you know just hurt to you fuck or with whatever. you yeah yeah um, so I was I was not surprised when it turned out to be his mom, and I was, I was wondering um, up until that moment, like when we were going to get some sort of payoff on that, uh, or whether we were for sure. Because I kind of thought it, it was such it was such a uh, such a, a, a deliberate and uh, notable shot in the the film up to that point that it seemed like they were going to do something with his character, uh, whoever this person was that was taking the form of, if we were going to get that much of you know a lingering shot on the whole thing. Uh, but it, interestingly enough, there are several uh, ghost forms that we don't have any context for. Like there's there's several uh, people that the ghost is being uh, to Jay or to Greg. Um, it's never explained. Who? who yeah, we don't know who yeah. they are. Which seems the old like lady. Yeah, yeah. The old the old lady, the the weird little Naked kid guy. who breaks through the door. Oh no, the, I thought I thought the weird little kid was one of the kids that was peeking at her while she was um, while she was uh, in the pool. Uh, maybe I guess that could have been, um, but yeah, the, the 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 naked guy on the roof, uh, the the tall guy who comes in behind Yara, yeah. um, the the girl with one sock on who's peeing herself. Uh, yeah, um, and that was was she wearing like one of like thing that I read about her said that she was wearing like plastic vampire teeth. I thought her it just kind of looked like her teeth were knocked out. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was more the vibe I got was that she had been like yeah, probably just like really really explicitly assaulted. Yeah, that's um, that's that's that, that's one of the things. And I you know that's I wouldn't want to get back when um after Jeff slash Hugh drops her off and you you have that scene where the cops come by like the first shot that you see of Jay again is there's a cop like off screen and she's sort of like huddled up on the stoop and he's just like so it was consensual and then she says yeah and I think that was like that was a a sort of really important moment in how the movie was going to go from that point on where 
it was, but yet, like, look at her. Like, she, like, it hits, like, every beat of, like, the, the yeah. sort of, like, sexual assault thing. But instead of it being just, you know, because that's so, so rarely done well or for a reason. And in here, it's both. It is for a reason and it's well, and it's also not what you think it is. Um, and, and yeah, I, I thought that was... Yeah, just... that, it's, it's interesting because it makes it a thing where instead of just being sort of like cheap melodrama about someone, you know, lying about a situation, she's actually very truthfully answering the question. It's just the wrong question for what we understand to be what really matters and, here. And one of the really interesting things is there's, there's a, um, there's a bit of like a narrative thread of, so all the, the kids that are like, you know, the Paul, Yara and, and Kelly believe Jay, like they take a little bit of convincing, but at no point does it seem like they don't believe that something weird is going on. Greg, I think that there's like this, something about Greg is implying that he thinks she was assaulted and won't admit to it. Maybe, yeah. And that kind of gets him killed. Did you notice that? Yeah, Where... he, he really doesn't take the whole thing terribly seriously. Like, he's willing yeah. to sort of run with it, partly because I think, yeah, he's totally down with like, oh, okay, well, if it'll help you out, I guess I could have sex with you. Uh, you know, twist my arm yeah. sort of feeling. Which, of course, she's she, the, 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 that scene between them... They have that brief sex scene, and, and yeah, he's yeah. Uh, more or less into it, despite the fact that she is fundamentally not. Um, yeah, like she's you know very much just sort of like okay, this is a thing that we are doing tactically. Yeah, uh, and that that's like that's one of those like consent things where it's just like if it's in order to save your life, how consensual was that? But at the same time, like she's also not a victim, and in many ways, she has now gotten him killed, or like her consenting to it has killed him yeah there's there's there's, there's really complicated sense of uh, agency of, uh, and, yeah agency yeah. and coercion in the film instead of like really really flat obvious questions of well there was consent or there wasn't consent uh which is part part of what makes it so interesting and also kind of uh you know at, at, at i don't know it's a little bit hard to watch at times but, yeah but not in a cornball way at least which is it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a fucking lifetime movie is the thing you know to its credit it doesn't feel like uh a cheap sort of like you know uh a rape victim's you know story of survival sort of thing that would come with a bunch of really shitty uh writing and and soap opera acting um there's and- yeah, and and I think in in that way, like it's it's a I I, I don't know it, it's a teen sex horror movie where the teen sex is treated like as a serious aspect of their lives and not like joke fodder and as like an incredibly complicating aspect of their lives. Yeah, where they you know they they. They want to or they don't or, you know, they're like hormonally driven because they're like 18 or 19 years old. And yet when they get what they want, it's not what they thought it would be or the what gets them to the place where they get to that is not what they thought it would be. And it was just all, just a lot about how it's it, it's not just, all right, you know, like teen sex comedy, I lost my virginity, high five. It's it's much stranger than that and in yeah. that way it's a lot more realistic yeah where, like, that, that weird muddle of feelings and motivations and and doing a thing that you think you want to do and paul in particular is interesting there because he is the closest to the sort of clueless oh but you know losing your virginity is the thing you do or getting the girl that you want is the thing you do 
which makes him a frustrating figure uh, at at points in the film. But at the same time, it's interesting to see that the way the film ends up is with him sort of being... I, I sort of my take on the end of the film, like we get the two of them, they end up having sex, uh, and then the, the, we end the film with them walking together hand in hand, not looking cheery and in love or anything, but very you know, much like together. A, the graduate end of the graduate. Sorry, uh, <laughs> that sense that well, yeah. we are both here, but uh, but but they are, but they seem to be at least sort of uh, in what could potentially be a partnership there together, and that's that's an interesting change for the first time in the film. There really is a sense of a potential of partnership in this dilemma. Because Greg, Greg is like, oh, yeah, I'll do this thing, and then doesn't really buy into it and then goes and gets himself killed. The people who they may or may not have respectively had sex with off camera who then would have presumably been killed off camera, uh, there was never anything – like that. It was, it was passing the buck. It was punting. Uh, and then with finally with her and with Paul, the implication is that, okay, we both have this problem and you know we can deal with it together, which is – you know, some forward progress there in terms of like, you know, it becoming more of the idea of sharing uh, a difficulty uh, rather than just sort of trying to dispose of it. Yeah. And I, and I think like the movie does a really good job with Paul because he's set up as just like, you know, him and uh, Jay, it's later revealed, are like childhood friends who like saw less of each other when they became teenagers. And then like this is something that brought them closer together. But he's also very, very much set up like as an annoying, like nice guy kind of guy, yeah. like capital nice, nice yeah. guy where he's just like trying to sort of it's it's never clear what his intentions with her are and it, and it's just one of those I, I just saw so much of like teenage me and Paul is embarrassing <laughs> where it's just like you don't you're, you're not sure why you're attempting to like become intimate with somebody you know he's never quite sure that what that's what he wants to do but he's like doing like the dumb thing his instincts are telling him to do which are dumb like especially in that moment where he's just like um, it's like well you know hey I can I can spend the night and protect you and like all of them in unison just go say no <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and and he he does that, but at the same time, it's clear that that he he respects Jay. He's just like he doesn't see her as strictly uh, like like a sex object the way that uh, Greg. Like you see, you get like a couple of POV shots from Greg, and they're all like super male gazy. Like yeah, like Greg checks out every cast member in the film at some point. You know, there's like yeah. a scene. Uh, with a a, a a look at someone who is, you know, doing something else and, you know, looking at a girl's ass or her legs or whatever. Yeah, and there's, like, you know, there's, the, there's like, at least one, sh- like, one, like, uh, really sort of ogly shot, like, you know, uh, like, shot of um, Yara when she's, like, standing trying to get something just, yeah. like, going from her feet to her head. and And it's clearly from Greg's perspective. And I sort of like that because this movie really... Considering how many, like, teenage girls in their underpants are in this movie, or how many scenes with a teenage girl in her underpants in this movie, it explicitly avoids being, like, male gazy, except when it does it on purpose. Yeah, like, like, like they're, they're, yeah, it's very much sort of like mm-hmm. Greg is the representative of the sort of cinematic tradition of running girls around in not much in horror movies, but it really kind of is just him. Well, and, and the sex in the film, like, like, like there are several scenes of people having sex, but it's almost, uh, I, 
I would say basically all surprisingly non-exploitative. Like, you yeah. know, these are not like steamy sex scenes that get interrupted by something horrifying. Every single one of them is, is, is pretty like staid and purposeful. You know, the early one in the car, it's just the two of them having sex, but it's just like, you know, shot from, from torsos up through the, the car window and we're just catching the tail end of it. And it's not a big moaning, oh God, sort of thing. It's, you know, very sort of like, oh, well, we did that. And that was, I guess that was it's, nice. It's small and intimate. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that, that that the film didn't sort of try and have its cake and eat it too on that front and try and do like, you know, let's do some sexy sex scenes, but then everything goes wrong, you know. Uh, it would have been easy a, for it to do that badly. Yeah, and then there's I think there's another shot of um, right after that all of that stuff happens, there's a shot of Jay like in the uh, in the bathroom in her underwear, and and again you're not like given like this exploitative angle to it at all, even though what you're watching is something that you know if you watch horror movies you've seen time and time and time again as like a titillating shot. And in and it even like goes so far as like she sort of like rolls down her underwear to to look, and I that, first that was like the most uh, like the, the clearest like sexually transmitted disease sort of moment where yeah. she's not sure what happened and that's like one thing that she's checking, um, and then like you know a rock hits the window and she goes to do some other stuff and and yeah I I'm not sure how like it it, it speaks to good filmmaking that I, I don't know how it didn't feel like exploitative um but it didn't yeah um it, it didn't it didn't feel like they did a whole lot of time lingering just for the sake of a well, maybe we should linger here for a moment um so yeah no it, it, it's interesting that 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 worked as as well as it did you know i think it it, it makes for some reasonably good decision making um but I, so I brought up I brought up the parents earlier in the conspicuous absence because I, I kind of want to uh, make a theoretical argument here that part of why the parents are conspicuously absent is their absent is representative of maybe a shared uh, situation of parental sexual abuse. Like maybe yeah, every parent there's... we don't see in the film because because we see a bunch of parents uh, as ghost forms menacing various people, usually their own kids. Uh, we the the opening of the film with a girl who runs off uh and you know she has a brief interaction with her dad but she's obviously super occupied with a ghost that we never get to see for her um but that that whole thing where she goes to the beach you know she sort of doesn't stop to talk to her dad she she runs she goes to the beach she calls her her parents uh in a uh, very blair witchy sort of scene yeah uh, where she's just like weeping into her telephone, leaving a message. You know, yeah. So that's establishing this real strong sort of like parental connection in crisis with with unseen parents. Uh, we see Jeff's mom is the the naked woman early on. We see uh, Greg's mom who basically sexes Greg to death. Uh, we we don't see uh, Jay's dad. It's not clear whether he's dead or divorced or or what. You know, but as little as we see of Jay's mom, I don't think we see Jay's dad at all, except for in photos. And then it turns out he's the one who's attacking her at the no, pool. No, no, it's it's you don't see the photo is the reveal of who that is. Because, oh, okay. Um, yeah, what yeah. happens is when she's, I wasn't sure know, if I'd missed it earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't because they they showed another close up of like a girl with two people that we don't see in this movie. I'm not sure who those people were. Maybe they were her grandparents. Maybe that was like a shot of her like mom with her grandparents or something. But it's it's not really made clear who it is. Um, 
But yeah, when she's in the pool, like, she's just like, oh, God, it's here. And they're like, oh, you know, what is it? What does it look like? Um, she's just like, it's, it's horrible. I don't want to say it. And then when it, um, it, when you see the stuff from her perspective and, like, you know, the monster just, like, starts chucking all the stuff at her, it's just, like, a guy in boxers and a tank top. Yeah. Um, and then, like, after that scene, you see uh, Jay, like, laying in her house or something, and there's... Or maybe it's just a shot in the house, and there's, like, a brief shot of a woman that's clearly Jay's mother and Jay and, like, that guy who was her father. Yeah. And, yeah, that was... It's... Well, I think it was. I think it was. I would think it was the mom and the dad, and like younger versions of Jay and Kelly. Right, uh, was, right, right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and like, yeah, the 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 it, it just for some reason it it just connects all the right dots for it to be like abuse, but never in any way implying it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It, it's it's really interesting. It's just sort of left hanging. Like the the absence of the parents is conspicuous. Mm-hmm. The references occasionally to parents, you know, being sort of neglectful or not caring. Uh, there's the conversation early on between Jay and Kelly where they're walking along and Kelly's smoking and Jay's like, you know, mom knows you smoke. And Kelly's like, yeah, but she'd, she'd, she'd cry if she ever actually saw me do it. Uh, ties well to an idea of, you know, their mom essentially trying to avoid the specter of whatever this history of familial sexual abuse was that might be why dad's out of the picture. You know, that could work very well as they're like, yeah, you know, she knows, but she can't actually deal with it uh that would fit very well with the narrative of 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 that sort of like shitty hidden family history and her you know drinking problem yeah um the there was a couple other things too but 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 yeah it just it it feels like it feels like a very potent potential explanation for what's going on with the subtext of the film you know which again if we want to treat this as sort of like a, a dream logic, you know, strange alternate collapsed reality sort of scenario. The idea that these kids all have this shared, uh, history there, you know, potentially they all have this shared history of sexual abuse, uh, from the, uh, literally or metaphorically absent parents, uh, I think sort of works as a set piece as one way to look at the film. And I think it, if, if that is the case, and I think the movie, I mean, I like. I read an interview with a director, and he's just like, and he's this is he's definitely like a Lynchian sort of like I'm not giving you any answers because I don't have them, or I did not necessarily think of answers for the questions that I posed, or think of like you know definite you know definite um, you know is it A or is it B for like the things I created, even though I know what it looks like, and yeah. I think and and that's one of those things like if she was a victim of abuse, it's. The movie doesn't make anything the result of that. It doesn't. It doesn't punish her. It. It doesn't. I mean, obviously, it doesn't reward her. It doesn't. It. It doesn't impact her in a way where you where it's like this like little pat explanations where you see it like in a lot of horror movies. It's like, well, you know, he's like an evil villain because he was molested as a child, which is a pretty common one. Um, it. It doesn't do anything like that, uh, which I think was was uh was an opportunity not taken that was smart to not take yeah yeah don't collapse it down to a oh yeah. but it's all because of x sort yeah. of thing it's it's left much more confusing and and hard to sort out um i'm trying to think if i had any other like serious thematic thoughts 
uh, on the film. I'll glance through my notes real quick because I because I've got a bunch of dumb stuff I want to talk about too. But yeah. I, it's it, it was I liked the movie so much yeah. and there was enough to chew on yeah. that I kind of feel yeah. like getting out the good stuff is a good idea. I wonder like how much of the 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 sense of dread and like the always looking behind your back at shoulders approaching you is in some ways like supposed to call to mind like the sort of PTSD post traumatic like ap- after sexual assault thing where you just you know you are you are wary and you are you are in you know paranoid isn't the right word but it's just, just like hyper aware of your surroundings yeah, in the way that like yeah. this monster forces you to be and like that yeah you're you know, you're on edge you you've got mm-hmm. a constant sense of uh not being safe basically is the overriding yeah. thing there and, and the fact that they yeah. somewhat and separated it, from the actual idea of like literal sexual assault in the film to be more yeah. of this you know baggage uh, makes the film less uh, less of a drudge to get through emotionally than it might otherwise be, but it still feels very present there as a a metaphorical intention. Yeah, which um, you know isn't isn't very much the opposite to movies where like a sexual assault does happen, um, but then you know it's not followed up on in like a not realistic, but it's just not followed up on in. It, it, in a sensitive way, I guess, or or in a naturalistic way. Yeah, oftentimes. Um, whereas this, like, this is you know very hard into like the fantasy area. There's you know there's a monster. There's literally a monster in this movie, and yet that 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 like palpable source of dread after it is is representative of just like a very human, very unfortunately common thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels like it, in in lazier stories, using uh, something like sexual assault as a as a plot point, it's it's often either just way too much of a convenient, you know, secondary motivation thing. Well, there was a sexual assault, and that's why this character is broken, or that's why this character is vengeful, or that's why this character has to learn to trust again, or or as much as anything, that's why this other character, who's the important character, has such a motivation to deal with whatever the situation is. And yeah, it can be it can be such a like, oh well, you know, I mean, there was. There was a rape, and so you understand why this is happening, rather than like shit is complicated and it leaves traces behind that make you know just life hard in a, a much less conveniently you know plot point sort of way. Um, I wanted to, to mention a couple of camera things that I noticed. Um, there was uh, you mentioned there's there's a number of pans in the film, which which. Were all long enough. A couple kind of three sixty degree ones. Yeah, they made me I think of Sam was... Raimi and, and Evil Dead really as much as anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'm sure other people have done that before Sam Raimi, but for some reason, the original Evil Dead in particular, partly because they ended up yeah. feeling so goofy in their protracted nothing happenedness, uh, it le- has left a huge impression on me, especially when I'm thinking about horror. But uh, but but those pans, they were also uh, blurry. And, and and I mean, obviously, if you're moving a camera, you can end up with blur because you're moving the camera and exposing the frame over the period of it. But you don't have to end up with a lot of blur. Uh, and if you're shooting in broad fucking daylight, it's not that hard to, you know, get your get your frame speed down and get a, a, a much sharper exposure on every frame of that, that pan. So the fact that it's blurry feels like it had to have been some sort of intentional choice. But I thought it was interesting because it was sort of conspicuous. Um, I don't know if that jumped out at you or, or, or not, but it, I did not notice it. It 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 also could have been something of it, it, maybe it's not in the film, and it's actually just an artifact of the projection <laughs> at the theater. I saw that. I don't know. Um, I'd be curious to know. The movie uh, kept just having large sections with no sound. 
Yeah, that, I don't know if that was an artistic decision. An usher would come out every 12 minutes and say, hey, I'm sorry, uh, there's something wrong with the projector. I assume that was in the script. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, the blurry plants I thought were interesting. Because, I mean, the, the, the film that, was plenty sharp uh, camera-wise when it wanted to be. That actually just reminded me of I, years and years and years ago, I went to a Broadway, or no, maybe off-Broadway, or, or, or theatrical um, theatrical interpretation of a bunch of short stories by um, oh crap Haruki Murakami and they were done entirely in Japanese but like on the stage was like a dot matrix projection screen and the play starts with that projection screen breaking and like a person coming out to tell you that it broke <laughs> and definitely like 100% on purpose this is how the play starts and, yeah. and I always thought that was that just reminded me of that yeah uh uh, another camera thing. Uh, I I may have mentioned this earlier already, but the uh, uh, in reference to the Kubrick stuff, the steady cam on the wheelchair, the reverse steady cam shot on the oh, wheelchair. Oh, the, uh, she... the the Snorri cam. That's that. It's because it that is that yeah, what they call it? <laughs> yeah, it's called the Snorri cam. Um, it's it's the one like I, I you know it's it's clear in this one. If you've ever seen Pi. Just about like every shot from um, oh yeah yeah you know uh, of... the guy's perspective is like the Snorri cam, which is basically a steady cam rig that straps to your head or body, and so you you'll you'll see it often used in like shots of uh, the BoJack Horseman intro is is <laughs> an animated thing done for that in effect. the style of that yeah. Yeah, where you're following around the person's head and everything. The head is still, although reacting to whatever is going on around it, and everything in the background moves. And yeah. it's just very disorienting and focusing. Um, and yeah, like the wheelchair shots were done with that. And there weren't a lot of other like conspicuous camera work things in this movie. And it was, and they didn't do it excessively. And I, I, I thought it was very well done the way that they, they, they did it. Yeah, and I, I like I liked that they got. Uh just some sort of natural intensity to the camera work, even with a fixed camera attached to the wheelchair there, just with any shaking started to throw the frame around a little bit uh, in a way that, that reminded, at first I was wondering if they were actually doing some intentional post-processing wobble. Uh, you remember that, that, that scene in Fight Club where Tyler Durden's giving a speech about you're not a unique and beautiful snowflake uh, and, and, and everything starts wobbling more and more as he sort of gets intense towards the end of the speech. You know, it, it had that, that little bit of sense of that sort of like you know, uh, camera intensifies feel. Although I think it, I think it was actually just more an organic part of her shaking the wheelchair that the camera was attached to, because right. you see more of that once it starts moving around. But uh, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting for the I, I, I liked that that sort of steady cam feel. I liked the fact that once she started moving, it really emphasized how much this was a camera attached to her rather than just a camera pointed yeah. at her because at that point it becomes oh we're really we're really attached to this perspective and it becomes very disorienting um, yeah and she's and yeah i mean that that's what she is she's restrained in the wheelchair and and i think that that's a that was a good way of conveying just the idea of being stuck in that chair yeah um uh, but there's also something about that and, and some other shots as well, but it was sort of clear there. There's this real strong use of uh, fixed focus uh, at, a, at a number of times. It works well with the whole freaky thing wandering in from a distance because that, that shot of her in the wheelchair is focused real tight on her. Uh, it's a relatively shallow depth of field in the shot, so everything in the background uh, is blurry from that perspective shot. 
um, which really keeps the focus. On. And it's something where, like, we've talked a number of times about split lens shots. You know, I, I, I love it when they do that with the ground lens where you've got a different focal length on one side lens the other. And so you get the extreme close-up in, in tight focus and also the distance in tight focus. And this is somewhere where they could have played with that effect, uh, whether with literally a split lens or with a little bit of trickery. Uh, but they didn't, and I think it was more effective for keeping that sort of sense of, like, it really emphasizes the vulnerability of not being able to do anything about this position you're in and not being able to see from the position you're in to to keep the stuff in the background out of sharp focus, too. So it keeps it that much more of a sort of, like, I don't have the sensory field that I want to in this situation. Um so I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting too, and there were—I uh, feel like there were a couple points in the film where they used that sort of forced, uh, out of focus, distance stuff pretty effectively. Yeah, um, there's one of the one of the characters who you don't find out whether was you know the monster or not was when they were um, at uh, Jeff slash Hughes school, and it did like that. I, I think it did like three turns, like three three hundred sixty degree turns. And, uh, you know, the first two, there was nothing, and then I think on the third one, maybe it was just two, but, like, there was nothing, and then they, you saw, like, uh, one of the things that had turned near was the administrative office, and then you saw um, Greg and Kelly, I mean, Greg and uh, Jay in there, but, like, the whole time that was happening, like, outside, well out of focus, was just, like, a woman walking, and only one person walking, it was just, like, a single woman just walking possibly toward the camera. Yeah. And yeah, never, never made, uh, you know, never, never clarified. Could be, could be anything. And there was also another shot like that. Um, I think when they're driving home from the movie theater, or they're driving to like the restaurant from the movie theater, uh, or, or, or from the restaurant to somewhere else, and there's just like a figure in the darkness that's like quickly pan tube and then away. And it could be an establishing shot. It could have been a shot like you know highlighting that person. They're never seen again. And I, I think that does a, you know, a conveys like that, like it could be anyone feeling really well when we don't get payoff one way or the other. Yeah, I think I think there's a question. Angela sort of brought this up last night when we were talking about it. It's like the, the question, if, if you really wanted to look for it, how many scenes can you make a compelling argument that it is in that scene, even if it's not something That's... that the film particularly tries to play up at that moment? Because there's definitely, like, there, 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 there's, there's scenes where the film very intentionally plays up an ambiguous, is this... It, but then there's plenty of other scenes where, like you've said, you know, there's people in the background because uh, it's, you know, you've got background action and it's, you know, shooting a movie. Uh, and yeah, it'd be interesting to go through and try and make that argument uh, for the more subtle, non emphasized background stuff throughout the film. Yeah, and um, the ad- I think almost all the adults in this movie appear as it. Which I think is just like adds to like what you were saying, where like the adults are conspicuously absent, and then when they appear, they're often vilified. Yeah. If they're yeah, if, if they're interacting with the people on screen, they're often vilified, which which I think is um, just uh, it it's it's another way to reinforce like the 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 whole like there's no adults here, and also just from like the perspective of a teenager, it just you know create it, it just reminds you of that distance. Between yeah. you know the, the teenagers and you know the the quote unquote grown ups, um, so was, um, I was just going to say the I, I was reading a interview with the director and they mentioned that like you know that that their, their plan at the end is to lure the monster into a pool and then throw a bunch of plugged in things into the pool to electrocute it. 
and the director mentioned he was just like, yeah, this is a dumb plan. This is like a <laughs> Scooby-Doo caliber plan come up with by like a bunch of terrified 18-year-olds. Yeah. You know, I it's it's like it's it's set up like the big climax and in some ways it is. But there is nothing about that that would have implied that it would work. And he's just yeah. like, I, I also deliberately skipped, like, the planning, um, like, the planning session of them, like, you know, setting up what they're going to do and how they're going to kill it. Because he didn't want to actually make them make them comprehend any of its vulnerabilities. We don't yeah. know if they figured out if it had a vulnerability or not. Or whether, like, the best thing they could do is, uh, I guess we can electrocute it. Yeah, I was um, – me, me and Angela were really divided on that scene actually. She – like the whole scene just drove her fucking crazy because of all the stupid things about it basically. Um, whereas I was mostly on board with it because of like this is an audacious plan that does not seem like it would work. you know. And I was sort of like on board with that because I liked the fact that I could discern what their plan was and also be like, well, yeah, but yeah, I can see how it could go wrong too. And then it totally completely goes wrong which is good because it didn't work. Uh, and it's also set up like a, um, you know, when when they're doing it, they, they, they set it up like the big confrontation where yeah. the good guys win. Yeah, it's like, totally you know, framed out as a, like the big hero standoff. This is the... Uh, yeah, there's like the dry, you know, the, they're going there and there's like the dramatic voiceover and you see like all of the shots of like, you know, them getting the bags out of the car. They're clearly prepared. They've got a plan. And then they start executing the plan and you realize it's just dumb as hell. Yeah. The fact um, that the fact that they decline to explain it too is great in, in in my mind because I like that that implies that there's going to be a big impressive like that's 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 what you do right it's like what are we going to do well I'll tell you knowing look cut away we miss the explanation and we only get to find out once the movie shows us this awesome plan they came up for, with for this bank heist or this confrontation or whatever and then what we get is this thing that like it doesn't hold together and then it all falls apart immediately once they try and put it into practice. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was a great sort of like narrative fake out that really sucked the wind out of a potential. Because yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it it went like as bad as you possibly could because then Jay was in the water. The monster gets there, and all of the stuff that they set up around the pool, the monster just starts using as ammunition. Yeah, just very very expertly throwing it at Jay and repeatedly like hitting her and bloodying her. Yeah, and and the fact that the first first thing that goes in doesn't electrocute her is a relief yeah. because it means she didn't get electrocuted. Whereas the plan yeah. was, I'm sure, get it to come into the pool. She gets out, then they go for it. But it's I, I you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Sim, uh, Homer was trying to gain weight for disability? Yes. And he goes to the the store and he he buys a big old tub of <laughs> weight gain weight stuff gain and he gets a lucky for you this stuff don't work. Uh, and <laughs> I wrote that down in my notebook that quote just because like this is such that moment of yeah yeah no I I. I what one one I think really reasonable question that Angela asked about this that doesn't really change uh, the scene because the whole point is that it doesn't work anyway is what kind of pool has an outlet every six fucking feet <laughs> on the wall all the way around the pool that doesn't that doesn't really track with me maybe that's how they do do it in in Detroit but uh, yeah, but yeah maybe. that did, that um, seems you know and we never saw a big snake of extension cords to deal with it either 
it was just sort of set up as a thing to do. Yes, we'll plug these into the outlets that are obviously there without and, our extension cords. Yeah, and I, I, I liked it. There's there's um, there's a lot of uh, like movies where there's like an electric somebody gets electrocuted by something you know plugged into a wall and they're just like electrocuted to death and blown up. Where there's like no way that much current would be going down the thing without the fuse blowing first. And I was actually thinking that I'm just like you can't plug that many things into that many sockets and like have it do anything than just start a small fire. <laughs> um, and and in this movie, instead of like that being like you know one of those suspension of disbelief things where you just have to pretend like it works, it doesn't. And that may very well have been reason or one of the reasons why it was just never going to work. Yeah. Um, and it's just you know the like their their plan just had it, their plan revolved around trying to physically destroy this thing by use by you know like using things they found and like the real world sort of seeping into that movie just doesn't it, it doesn't grab on long enough for it to work and I, and I like that just cuz it keeps it that much more you know phantasmal yeah and and you're also like you're also probably expecting like a big like fx electrocution shot and you're also sort of robbed of that and then you're they and then they 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 take that away but then they bring you like that the the that pool turning blood red yeah which you know was also a very very impressive shot and like definitely like a set piece shot for this movie yeah um yeah well do you have any other particularly thoughtful things to say about it or should we proceed to the ridiculous uh um picking it apart i really really like the shot of the naked guy on their roof well, yeah, well, that was that was a great sort of just like out of nowhere. Like, I I, I got a very Walter White and Breaking Bad sort of vibe, honestly, from it. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- there is a question: How did the guy get on the roof? Apparently, this thing will climb sometimes. But uh, yeah, and why was it going on the roof? Like, you know, they're they're leaving they're leaving the house uh, to. I think I think this is when they go to the pool, right? I, I think you know, maybe they're, they're, so. Yeah, they're, they're driving away, and then you see Jay sort of just, like, look back at the house, and then there is, like, a middle-aged naked man standing on there. Yeah. And just sort of, like, making, you know, intense eye contact with her and following the car with his head, and it's just so creepy and, and, and just so well done, because even if that wasn't a monster, it, it doesn't matter that it's a monster or not. There's just, like, a naked guy making direct eye contact with you on a roof of your house. Yep. Um... Let me think if there's anything else. Um, what? What? So, uh, what's her name? Uh, is it Mara? Crap. Yara. Yara. Yeah. Yara has this device which basically yes, looks the like clamshell a, e-reader thing. Yeah, it's it's a, it's not a smartphone. It, I she doesn't do anything but read uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot on it. So I think it's supposed to be an e-reader in, in the shape of a clamshell. Um, with, with the terrible clam- cropping all around the the screen, so like yeah, the like place you could read a full sentence is like in the middle of the circle. On yeah, if you've ever screens. tried to read on a Nintendo DS, that it was it was that. It's like there's this big gap between between like the the two screens that they're not remotely connected, and you scroll through them. Um, and it, what was that? It was it was the size of a smartphone, so it doesn't really make sense that she was using that instead of a smartphone. But it was definitely supposed to be like futuristic. It was it was supposed to be. It, we we don't have anything like that right now. Whether it's because it's not worth trying to make that, or because we can't do it well. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we don't have anything like that at the moment. And and 
Yeah, and you, could, you could make an argument that it's like some some weird sort of like Japanese import sort of thing. Yeah, you know, would would fit naturally, but there's not really anything else that ties into that as an idea uh, for Yara or for the kids in general, yeah. other than like they are kids, and in that sense, okay, you know, they are going to have potentially weirder stuff. But yeah, it did seem like it did seem like such a weird, out of nowhere device. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I got to thinking about sort of like the metaphorical aspects of this that could possibly be read into it. Like, there's something like the, like the shell says something. You know, you could go with like a Venus or Aphrodite. Uh, are they are they equivalent on the two pantheons, Venus and Aphrodite? I think so. Yeah, uh, anyway, but yeah, like yeah, you know, Venus Venus on the shell seems like a real obvious sort of uh, riff you could go with, which would tie in well to the general theme of sort of young sexuality in the film. Um, crudely speaking, you know, ha-ha, clam, shell, clam. Uh, but, you know, uh, hopefully that was not the, the grand directorial insight there. Um, but, yeah, also, I mean, and she she functions as this sort of, like, portal of literary insight in the film, too, with the, the occasional readings and with the... Uh, you know, glancing sort of move towards nerdishness with with the glasses and being sort of the bookworm or the clam device worm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't have anything more detailed there. But it, the, the the clamshell device definitely did feel like a conspicuous touch. Like that was a really deliberate I decision. Think, I, I think her character was also underused. Where she she was. You know, maybe they they couldn't figure out exactly how to make like the persona that they were crafting for her interesting enough to have her on screen more. But I, I wish she like had had more of an active role in this movie. Like at the end, she basically just gets shot. Like that's her big character yeah. arc is that she gets shot, which is you know one character arc better than Kelly, who does not have a character <laughs> arc in this movie. <laughs> well, she works um, at the yogurt place. She you know? works at the yogurt place, um, and she sort of she sort of seems to be interested in Greg. Yeah, sort of, but, you know, it's, yeah, but she's not, nothing happens with her. She, nothing good happens to her, nothing bad happens to her. I I think she was even more underused than Yara, except for, like, a couple of, you know, conversations between her and Jay where um, it's established that they, as sisters, they are close. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, they they talk, like, you know, she talks about, you know, whether she slept with Jeff slash Hugh and and yeah, it's it's established that you know they're they're not like sibling rivalry. Well, I mean, I'm sure there is some, but like it's established that they they will be close. Um, and I don't know. Do you have siblings? I I do. I have a younger brother and two older sisters. Did did the sibling uh, relationship in this movie seem like? Because I mean, I I felt. Would, I, I I could identify with like a bunch of the teenage stuff in this movie because it just reminded me of just being a teenager in a way yeah. that you know media about teenagers often doesn't like even come close. And in this one, it was you know they this, some of the situations they were in and some of like you know the personalities that emerged and some of the motivations seemed very very familiar to me. Um, did what did the sibling stuff at the, all? Anything? Not not overly. I mean, I could sort of see the sibling stuff, you know, reflected to some extent in like my sisters, but uh, they were a little bit farther apart age wise, and I think a little bit more at each other's throats growing up. Uh, my little brother and I, I went off to college. I'm four years older than him, so I went off to college when he was, you know, fourteen. And I was eighteen, and so some of I think what would have been the most resonant sort of 
uh, stuff there if we had been around each other more than just like during you know summer break. Uh, I think would have would have been sort of there because like he he and I remain you know close and 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 good friends as siblings. Um, but you know to some extent we we got into that as adults after after you know college and and both of us and so more like you know in our 20s we spent a lot more time uh together we lived in adjacent buildings in a, a, a adjacent apartments in a building in downtown portland for a couple of years which was great um so yeah no the, the the sibling stuff didn't resonate super strongly with me just because the specific circumstances there uh didn't like happen at that time so much uh for me and and a lot of the teen stuff didn't necessarily super closely resonate for me because i was kind of you know a a, a bookwormish kid uh, I was not terribly social. Um, and then when I was social, it was uh, m- much more on sort of like uh, doing cultural stuff than, than, you know, hanging out and drinking beer and having sex. Um, so I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the perfect resonant demographic for that, like specific age uh, okay. of the film. Yeah. I mean, when I was, when I was a teenager, I had like a, a small, very, very tight group of friends, a bunch of which whom I'm still, you know, friends with now and still see regularly now. And there was, like, a lot of weird, like, intergroup sexual frustration and, and you know, exploration and so on. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, so it's just really, really... And, you know, there was, there was also a weird older guy that hung out with us sometimes, like Greg. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know another another comparison here and uh, freaks and geeks sort of yeah, and some of the yeah, like yeah. The, the the crew of people obviously a lot of very different feel to uh, much of the film than much of freaks and geeks but yeah. you could almost see this being sort of like something happening in that specific sort of social uh, scenario yeah uh, if you had to put it into a sort of cinematic context yeah. um, I want to talk about uh, a ghost that walks two miles an hour. And just exactly fast. how it's not fast, uh, uh, you know, two, maybe, maybe three miles an hour. If it's, you know, laying the speed on, it's going for a relatively brisk walk, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, we never see it running. We never see it power walking. Yeah. And we never see it seem to transport. Like the implication is that it's just going to keep walking. Uh, so at three miles an hour, that's like 72 miles a day. Let's call it 75 every two days. It could do to 150 so 1,500 be, would be 20 days, 3,000 would be 40 days of walking. That's about, you know, east to west coast United States, right? Right. So if you can count on the thing to keep moving, like it's not going to get smart and stick around, uh, you know, in New York after you fly to L.A. because it's figured you out. It's going to be like, oh, fuck, okay, and it starts walking towards L.A. Uh, you could juggle it pretty carefully once you have a reasonable read on its speed to just make sure you're always at least a thousand miles away from the thing by you know having a few different places that you 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 fly to on a rotating schedule and that's even assuming you're sticking to the continental united states because if you could go around the world why not set up in australia with a you know and and they mentioned don't don't they mention like you can't take a boat away from it or something or you can't take a plane like i i think at one point like it's very briefly mentioned that like you can't run far enough away from this thing. Although, I, yeah, I don't know about, well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. about I, I, juggling it, you know, yeah. sort of like pinging it off a couple of different locations. Yeah, I'm going to assume that like short of going to Mars, you can't literally get farther away than it can get to. But if it's got a fixed speed, 
than you know the other so side the trick of the world. Is to have sex with a wealthy eccentric as soon as possible, and then be and then and then you know just let them take care of it by just bouncing between their chalets. Yeah, exactly. You know, th- th- this is this is a doable thing. You know, if you if you can get. If you can bounce, you know, ten thousand miles away by going to somewhere, you know, more or less antipode uh, to to you know where you started, then George Clooney has had one of these things on his back for five years. Has no idea. Yeah, it's just, it, it, that, that that'd buy you like four months, uh, and then and then you just you know move again. Like it, it feels like in that sense, if you had the budget for it, you could manage it just like that by by scooching around and knowing. You know, approximately where it is. I, I feel like you'd need to do some research on this. I, I assume it would just walk through an ocean. Like it wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, I'm at the shoreline. Yeah. Fuck it. So you have to assume that yeah, it's it's basically yeah. going to treat the Earth as you know, approximately a completely traversable sphere. You it, know? it doesn't like water, but it clearly is not harmed by water. Yeah, and if it can get on a roof, it can climb over the Great yeah. Wall of China. So you can't you know yeah. use that approach necessarily either. But I, but it seems like at a very basic level, you could solo avoid the thing just by continually making tactical movements and, and then continuing to move on a schedule. Yeah, if you were willing to put all of your time and resources into avoiding this thing, you could do it. Yeah, um, or if you, you circumstantially just, just... if you circumstantially had the time and resources and lifestyle inclination to do that, you could almost do it in a you know relatively minimally traumatic way. Like you know that this terrible thing could happen, but if you're vigilant. And you have the resources to just have ten different apartments in def- ten different places in the globe, and didn't mind moving every three weeks. Uh, then, yeah, you can really yeah. keep yourself at a safe distance. Um, I thought you were actually going to go somewhere completely different. Where I thought that um, if if you know this thing will constantly be moving and it will not stop, regardless of anything, nothing can stop it. And you know, once it finishes one target, it'll just go to the next one. Could you use it to harness energy? <laughs> as a perpetual energy source, I think I think there's an argument because it, it, it shows a capacity for great displays of strength. Like it, it, yeah. it just knocks Paul the fuck over when he hits it with a chair. Um, Can you trap it on a treadmill? Yeah, like yeah. W- <laughs> if you set up. Because it seems like there's a few different ways you could try and trap this thing if that's the way you want to go. One is we don't know how strong it is, but maybe it's not strong enough to break out of like ten foot thick steel walls. So yeah. if you can manage to lure it into a giant metal cube of a cage, and then go out the back door, seal that off, seal the entrance it came in. How long can you contain? It? Will it be contained indefinitely? Will it be contained for a while? You know, if if you put if you set up a closed circuit camera in there. Can you see it on a camera from a distance like that, or would you need someone to actually physically lay eyes on it? Is is one of the tactical questions here. But in any case, yeah, it feels like it feels like you could trap it. It feels like you the the treadmill thing is beautiful. I gotta say, because that's 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 gorgeous. You put it on a treadmill, you trap it in a whole system of treadmills. So it, like even if it wanders around, it gets stuck in sort of a vortex of treadmills. It's always going to push it back towards the center. Uh, and yeah, like you, you're, you're generating. I, I probably wouldn't be a great power source just because it doesn't move very fast. Like right. you know, you could you could make it power a small light bulb, probably. But uh, or I mean, you could make it wind something, and then the unwinding would be the energy. Yeah, but still, I mean, at that point, just harness some ocean waves if you're going to go for energy generation. Unless there's a whole fleet of these things, but it seems like it's just the one. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it would be a practical power generation scheme, but I think that would be a great way to stall it in place if it's stupid enough to not compensate for the fact that it's stuck on a treadmill. Um, so that's a really – I think that's a really interesting idea, in fact. Um, I was I, – I, I wanted to talk about a couple other tactical approaches to it. What if you lived in a hot air balloon? <laughs> what if you just – That would be wonderful. I'd love to live in a hot you know, air balloon. You know? It's like you just you – just, Or better I, yet, a Zeppelin. Yeah, you know, something, some, some, yeah. some sort of ongoing airborne thing, something that can just stay in the air and you can uh, manage somehow to do carefully arranged pickups. Uh, maybe you land briefly in a spot that you know it couldn't have gotten to in the time since you last landed. Uh, maybe you just monitor the landing area and scoot, you know, 50 miles over real quick to an alternate landing spot if you can see it when you're coming in the first time. So I feel like that would work unless, like, you know, the, the questions here, of course, we only see the monster respond in this film to the stimulus it gets, which is basically let, let's put some distance and then it's going to catch up with us. We never see them definitively put some sort of expected to be unbreakable barrier between themselves. And yeah, it. I mean, the closest thing is a door and it kicks through the door. Yeah, yeah. So, so we never see, we don't know, maybe it could punch through a 10-foot steel wall, you know, if it realized that it had to. You know, maybe it could float or fly if it if it if it knew it had to. Uh, yeah, it doesn't do. That's one of the things. It doesn't do anything necessarily superhuman in this movie, outside of just always be able to be there. Yeah, being it, being strong and not dying are the only like you know, def- and being invisible to yeah. most people. But yeah, it, it never does anything. Uh, more inexplicable besides those pretty basic okay that's a weird fucking supernatural situation obviously right yeah so but we don't know that it can't you know so that's 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 the question so uh, another possibility i was thinking because it'd be lonely to do this by yourself because if you're the only person who can verify that it's around there there's a problem Mm -hmm. uh we sort of get a hint uh at the possibility of jay and paul working together to avoid that lonely you're on your own feeling by you know if the two of them are in it together they can at least work together on this yeah. uh let's take it farther let's say you find like five or six like-minded people who are all willing to be part of this process and they're all like in it together and they just do a sex chain to make sure everybody is in in, in the group is infected mm-hmm. and then they're just a touring band they're just <laughs> the grateful dead the entire grateful dead all were haunted by this ghost sex virus and that's why they they toured so much they were just like they would wander around and they you know just you know keep moving enough that the thing would never catch up with them and then they'd have a reason to be on the road and and then they could take shifts if there was ever sort of like a question of danger you know taking turns so it's not you're not spending 24 hours trying to be watchful you're just spending you know three or four i think that could work I wonder I, – so if you were to live in a hot air balloon for long enough until – basically until you died of relatively natural causes, by that point, everybody else in the line would also be dead. True, yeah. If it, you didn't sleep with anybody and you just managed to avoid it somehow for the rest of your life. Well, and by, by that by that reasoning, in the long haul, it would still it would still die out. Anyway, because unless unless people kept successfully passing it forward and avoiding the ghost, you know, the, the whoever typhoid Mary was for us, whoever the first person to you know spawn this virus was, will be the last person it kills. But once that person is dead, that they can hardly be killed by the ghost, so the ghost is going to lose that target. Uh, 
So yeah, yeah. wouldn't the wouldn't the wouldn't it want to always go to, for the second person down the chain? Instead of, like, the very last person, it would go for the person before that. The person who passed it on? Yeah, like, the whole while, while Jay would have had it, it would have still been going after Jeff or Hugh, giving Jay enough time to pass it on to Greg, and then it would go after Jay while Greg passed it on. What, uh, instead of killing the, the, the apex. It, it's tricky, because, like, are we going to assume this thing has a motivation to survive, or does it just have a motivation to do the killing the people who That's are the same thing? Like, yeah, if this is if this is sort of a mindless, deadly force of supernatural nature, you know, it, it might just be, it's, you know, the, the werewolf's curse. It's It's not sentient. It's not aware that it's a curse. It's just a thing that happens, and if you kill the original werewolf... Then the cycle is ended, and and so it goes. It's just in this case, the thing killing the I, werewolf. I think that isn't that vampires. Uh, either way, you know, it's it's been used for both vampires too. I think lycanthropy is viral. Well, yeah, but it had to. Well, I don't know. There's, I've, I've, I, I think vampires more traditionally the kill the the head of the thing. Yes, but I've definitely seen the whole. Yes, but if we kill the, you know, the werewolf that caused it, everything will be. Okay. I feel like they used that in American Wolf in London. In fact, like the idea of killing. Uh, well, maybe not though. No, anyway, anyway, yes, the idea—the idea is certainly there, um, and the idea that it could all just go away if you got to the root of the problem. But how do you find the root of the problem? Because, and unfortunately, in this case, the only way to do that research is to do a careful examination of sexual history, uh, chaining all the way back to that without anybody ever stonewalling or lying or whatever. Also, if 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 a person back in the line, like, like, like say the third person to get it. Uh, passes it on. Now it's somewhere around seven or eight. I'm assuming it's bigger than that. But in, in any case, number three in the list then dies in a traffic accident. When the ghost gets to number four and kills them, if it manages to work its way that, back that far, does it then say, oh, but three's already dead? Eh, what do you do? Or does it like say, okay, well, clearly I need to hop to number two because I can sense that number three is dead. You know, it, Does breaking the chain through a non-vengeance or non-ghost killing actually break the chain or is it just like, you know, save the, the ghost some work and deny it a little bit of satisfaction. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I guess it depends on how long it's been around, because at a certain point, you know, it's maybe it's one of those, like, you know, like, half of all people are descended from Genghis Khan sort of things, where just, like, the exponential, the number of people exponentially that have had intercourse with, like, the person that started this just goes up so high that you know it's it's never a straight line it's always just like a a fractal bloom and then you know eventually like in because it's so slow it can only get so many people in so much time that eventually like most of the population is going to be killed by this thing yeah well yeah i either either it manages to get back to the root fairly early on or eventually in a hundred years the only people who will still be targets are relatively recent generations of it uh, and so it, the curse will only continue if people successfully continue to pass the buck on the curse. Uh, so yeah, it'd be interesting to sort of <laughs> it'd be interesting to mathematically model this as an epidemiology sort of thing with a very very narrow vector of of transmission, where somehow someone loses uh, their infectious nature as soon as someone else becomes infected, and try and figure out how that would work spreading through population if we modeled you know sexual behavior and travel and the the movement of of the ghost chasing people down 
because I feel like I feel like you could do some serious math to come up with a fairly robust model for how it would behave under uh, a certain set of assumptions about travel and sex, even if we assume that people aren't deliberately avoiding the thing and that there's just a certain amount of travel time keeping people from being immediately murdered every single time it got passed on. So someone get on that. I think I think that could work. Uh, Do you think this thing would make it into an episode of Buffy? You know, I I had some specific thought about Buffy. Uh, I think partly in in terms of how would this have been treated if it was a plot of a Buffy episode. I think one of the Scoobies would get it. Right. And then they would all have to deal with it somehow. You know, I, it would be Xander. It would be Xander who got it. Because it, 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 be it, it would be undercutting <laughs> this moment of sort of like, you know, Xander like triumph of, oh, I, t- I have made it with a woman. Um, with, oh, it's a monster again. Yeah, it's like, ah, oh, <laughs> son of a bitch. Once again, something terrible is going on. And then they'd all have to sort of like work together to solve it. And the thing is, if it was Buffy, then they'd solve it somehow, you know. Well, I mean, They're, Buffy would just kill it eventually. They'd be like, Buffy, probably. it's right there. And then they'd throw the bed sheet onto it like they did. Yeah. And then Buffy would just beat it to death. Yeah. Or Giles would come up with some unexpected, you know, other solution. Thing. He'd show up out of nowhere and sort of resolve yeah. the whole thing and bring in that sort of slightly paternalistic angle that would show up in the show sometimes of like, And well, then it would at some point show up as him. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there would totally be a bunch of like, it would show up as various. I think it would also talk in an episode of Buffy. Not necessarily, but I think there would have been a good chance, especially if it was an earlier season. It would have been a little yeah. bit mouthy rather than a silent, you know, dead-eyed menace. Um but yeah, yeah. No, I, I had some other specific thought about it and Buffy too, and I can't remember what it is now. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it's it, it'd be interesting to try and sort of transpose various, and, and obviously this happens to some extent in practice. But take various sort of supernatural or horror uh, TV series or franchises where there's a real clear sort of writerly tone to any given show, and then take the same premise and say, okay. But what happens, you know, if we throw it in Buffy? What happens if we throw it in Supernatural? Uh, which, again, I mean, happens to some extent because like, there's a ton of monster characters and, and sort of supernatural plot ideas that have been independently tackled by a bunch of different shows just because it's like, oh, yeah, well, we got to do the werewolf episode. Right. Which I think is, um, speaking of Buffy, why, like, the, the Dracula episode of Buffy was so um, charming, I guess. Yeah, because it was such an obvious thing to do. Yeah. But then they didn't just, like, do it as a, oh, but Dracula, he's the super vampire, was much more yeah. this, like, there's a real clash of, uh, you know, thematic and, and, and writing choices here, isn't there? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Your 19th century gothic horror is a little bit problematic, buddy. <laughs> I like to, I, I just remembered a little scene early in the film, Jay is, uh, she's in the pool. Uh, we see her in that above ground pool at the house. And there's a shot where she looks down and there's an ant on her arm and then she slowly lowers her arm into the pool and the ant floats away. And that struck me immediately as I, I bet they are going somewhere thematically with this uh, because it seemed like such a striking notion of, okay, well, sort of immersing yourself, putting yourself in a sense of risk in order to shed some sort of parasite. When I had that little bit of like, I know there's going to be something about a sexually transmitted possession thing and I didn't know anything else so far that early in the film. And then they very much sort of came back to that with the 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 lake stuff and the pool stuff, you know, immersion in water was a theme, but also that idea of specifically her making herself bait in the, in the abandoned pool. Yeah. How, how much of the movie do you think are we the monster? 
Because we spend, you know, the, the this hour and a half, two hours stalking these kids in, like, their most intimate of moments, you know, lurking just, like, slightly out of frame. Um, how, how much do you think that, like, did you, are, are there are there any POV shots from, from it? Uh, I, I, I did not get that feeling. I'm willing to run with this argument, but I did not get that feeling from the film at any point. Um, like, it feels like we're getting into just sort of, like, really really sort of reaching hey isn't this film really a condemnation of the audience you know i feel like you could you could make that your thesis but i don't feel like the film was actually really uh trying to be that it didn't seem like there were any conspicuous you are the eyes of the stalker uh feeling stuff that i can recall i mean yeah i I guess they it does put you more in the position of being stalked yeah even when it's not maybe not one of the kids being stalked but yeah, I mean, far be it for somebody on this podcast to reach. <laughs> um, Let's keep it reasonable. Here's what you do: you forget the Grateful we've Dead. Forget into a pool. We 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 get a hundred people. You start a scientific organization. This is okay. This is. I think this is why I was thinking about Buffy. It was like the whole the organization or whatever from Buffy's boyfriend of like secret scientist and military people from season three or whatever it was. Uh, you get. You, you, you infect like a hundred people, like and and all of this very organized and very consensually. So you have an organization of a hundred people who have whatever the thing is, the the, the curse, the haunting, and then you have another hundred people who are forbidden from contracting it from whoever the current live specimen is, um, who who don't have it, and you form an elaborate set of watch teams and and squads to be constantly monitoring for the presence of this thing. You come up with the way to be like a mobile laboratory, essentially maybe field teams who has, who have the, the active target is as well as several other recent targets in case of a mishap um, traveling around as the lure. And they're a mobile team that does, you know, rotating watches and performs experiments. And then you've got the organization back at headquarters, collating a bunch of data and doing sort of think tank stuff. And so you can do experiments on all of these ideas. You can carefully monitor this thing from a safe you know, distance, uh, well-maintained fleet of vehicles with backups in case anybody's car breaks down and you can't flee in that vehicle. Everybody piles into one of the spare vans and you're constantly on the move, constantly testing this thing, constantly doing science, figuring out the parameters. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think you could, you could learn so much if you had the right level of organization while also essentially eliminating the practical threat. Like it would at that point be no more of a terrifying, dreadful threat than any other, significant but manageable occupational hazard like we're not even talking about like you know being a cop and maybe you'll get shot by a criminal we're talking like you're a cdc worker and you need to make sure uh you've got your suit zipped up before you go interact with a pathogen sort of thing like i feel like if you if you had enough people involved taking it seriously and enough organizational moxie you could really kind of isolate this thing study it and keep everybody safe uh at the expense that whoever is currently uh, the holder of the the live infection can't go having sex with anybody new, and that's the thing. Okay, can if 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 Greg has sex with Jay, Greg gets the thing from Jay. At that point, Jay still has the thing. Like she can still see it, and it'll eventually come for her if the rest of the line gets knocked out. But it's not coming for her. If Greg and Jay have sex again, does Greg stay the target, or is there is there swap backs? Can you tag back? Huh. I wonder. 
I want to I want to say you can't just because it feels clean, but it's yeah. it, it's 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 hard to say exactly. Also, uh, this is something that me and Angela disagreed about with with our assumptions we made. It I'm assuming that everybody all the way back can always see the ghost. Yeah, me too. Whereas I, I think Angela's take was well. like it was like a couple generations back maybe, and then after that you're sort of deactivated until you get there. Um, I yeah, I, I I prefer the idea that everybody can partly because like a lot of the ghosts that we see we don't as we said we don't get any explanation of who this person is. There's a bunch of them who are unfamiliar people. We never get any clue about the rest of the film, which right. seems like they're the baggage of earlier on people, which suggests that there would still be some sort of psychic link it's got a memory. there. Yeah, like and and the thing could remember even if those people get free of it temporarily while they're not in the buffer. Yeah. But but I, I I'm inclined to think it goes all the way back. Yeah, I mean, it seems to absorb uh, the forms that it can take from the memories of the people infected by it. Yeah, because it 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 um yeah, I mean, I guess the only we we see strangers, which which must have come before, and then we see you know people they know, but that not necessarily have anything to do with it outside of knowing them, and that's yeah, it. yeah, exactly, because because yeah. when uh, uh, Yara at one point. It's it's looking like Yara on the the beach at the lakeshore, yeah. uh, and as far as we know, Yara's got no connection to this otherwise than being someone that Jay knows. Uh, so yeah, yeah. And I think that was like a great um, a great thing when like when they're on the beach and uh, the, they're all talking and the you know Yara starts coming up from like the back. And then you're just, and then she's just walking silently. It's just like, well, that's you know, that's Yara, is it? And then yeah, it's a it's a know, great it's a great protracted psych out because you don't know yeah. and you wonder, is it? Oh, maybe it's not. Maybe yeah. it is. And then you get the clear shot that, oh, that's Yara who's in the water. So yeah. that's not Yara. And then like the effect shot of like the monster lifting up Jay's hair. Yeah. And like Jay's hair like floating in the air and then the kids finally being like, oh shit, it's, a, you know, definitive proof. This shit is like, for really reals. Yeah. Um, and then, oh yeah, and then it beats up Paul. I forgot about that. Paul hits it with a beach chair, like wrestling style. Yeah, and it just and sends it just him flying him. with a whack. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I noticed Yara, ghost Yara at that point, after that, we get a clear shot that she's got a little blood coming out of her nose that I'm assuming... Yeah. It was well, from she, him hitting she, her with a chair. Yeah, and then and then he shoots her in the neck. Well, yeah, later, but but before that, like when it, when she's just sort of advancing towards them after being whacked with a chair invisibly, she's got a little blood coming out of her nose. That I assume it's like from him being because otherwise, that or the monster's just being sort of weirdly dramatic. I don't know. Another another little thing I wanted to say. Uh, speaking of Lynch, is the the scene in the parking lot with the wheelchair and and Jeff teaching. Uh, Jay about the whole situation. So yeah. the, the naked woman wandering along also made me vibe a little bit to Blue Velvet. To Blue Velvet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something about was, just that slow, was... deliberate naked walk that was like unglamorized. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm trying to, did I have something else to my theory there? So we've got the organization, we've got the science. Uh, yeah, I, that, that may have been all of my specific numerical theories. But well, I, I would think like the people that are infected with it would become like a pampered cast of uh yeah you know like work. like a queen bee sort of figure where they oh, are that could you know, work. taken yeah. care of and they're just and, you know, literally, all their desires are catered to yeah. but they can never have sex with anybody for the rest of their lives well yeah it, it'd be a whole there'd be a whole line of succession of people uh tree and maybe they would need to be kept in you, you could have traveling caravans of the the, yeah. the four or five people at the top of that 
um, at the top of that list. And, and maybe the ideal person to be at the top is someone who actually elected for it because they already are basically uh, asexual. You know, and so they've decided, yeah. yes, well, there's no downside to this for me because you know I don't actually have a desire to have a sexual life. So I'll do this thing. I'll acquire it. And then, boom, yeah, I get richly compensated for this. Or another way you could go is if you can't do tag backs uh, and, and, and anybody who's got it already just keeps having it, keeps staying in the order they are, you could have a, a, a traveling sort of just libertine clan moving around who they can have all the sex they want with each other. They just have to keep it in the family, except – Except everybody who isn't the lead person can have sex with other people too. So that person has to be happy only having sex with the five or six other traveling infected they have. But everybody else can have sex with whoever they want because they can't transmit because they're not the at, at the top of the stack, if that's right. the way it works. Uh, which seems like the implication. Like, we didn't get anything from the film suggesting that you could multiply infect a bunch of other people simultaneously. It seems like you'd have to do it serially when you become infected again because other people in front of you died. Yeah. Also, what counts as sex? Like, there's there's the implication of yeah, it basically all the being sex in this is is, is penetrative it, heterosexual yeah. intercourse. Like, uh, would a hand job count? Would a blow job count? There's, I, it's it's probably you know again for the best of the film didn't think what other ways I mean, can we no, come no, up no, with I, portraying teens I, having sex with each other I, in this film? I think specifically it does not because I do not think that uh, Jay slash I mean Jeff slash Hugh and Jay went from like zero to sex in a car. Uh, you know, like that, that was yeah. like, I don't think that was like that, that, yeah, it seems that plausible that there might that have been the some, first sexual encounter yeah. that they've had. Yeah. There could have been some so. fooling around, although not necessarily. I mean, we don't know for sure. We can't say it's, yeah, no, we don't know. We can't say they obviously, but, you know, did any oral sex or, or hand jobs or whatever, you know, it, it, is it, is it driven by the mode of sexual contact or is it driven by, uh, orgasm is orgasm the moment of transfer so if and you just have a lot of like, you know, build up but never finish off, would you be fine? You know, is it is it only if you come? Yeah, yeah. And then and and then in that case, in case who, does it have to be both of you, just one? Does it matter yeah. which one? Yeah, um, it, 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 if, 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 if Jeff is passing it on to Jay and Jeff has an orgasm and, and Jay does not, does it work? Vice versa, does it work? Do they both have to? Does it... Do, do either of them have to, or do they just have to like genuinely like? If the ghost is like, I someone is someone is getting it on. This is there clearly. There's intent. Intent matters, you know. Because what if someone what if someone has like erectile dysfunction, and they just are incapable of you know getting or sustaining a hard on long enough to actually complete the sex act in the in the traditional sense of you know uh, spurting. Right. I think it's the technical term. Uh, you know, where does that leave them? Are they incapable of passing it on, or does the fact that they're you know making their best effort count? Yeah, and I, I think you know it, the movie does a very good job of never making clear what kind of monster is it. Is it supernatural? Is it you know like is it a curse? Is it like a summoned like supernatural creature? Yeah, is it, is, like is it a, a vengeful demon? Kind? Is it a you know horny ghost that doesn't understand the damage it's yeah. doing? Yeah, it's like is it it is it secular or not? Like, is this like a a a religious like sort of thing that's come into being, or like a cultural myth, or you know, you the movie never answers that and never really hints is the at any of is it. Is the fact that we only see heterosexual penetrative sex intended to mean anything on that front, or is it just circumstance that they didn't decide to throw in a you know 
gay or lesbian subplot. Uh, yeah, I think this is like one movie that um, I guess maybe like sort of has an excuse to be exclusively heterosexual in that like it not being would complicate this way too much. I don't know if it would though. See, I, I like I don't think I don't think the film gains or loses anything in particular story wise by being heterosexual or not in the terms of the sex because like I don't think the I, I I enjoy asking these questions and I think it's fun to sort of plumb this but I don't think it really does anything to the film one way or the other the, the film I think would work just as fine if you know Jay was you know a, a, a guy and, and he and Paul were childhood friends and they ended up consummating it later in the film like I don't think I don't think that would change anything about the story uh, so it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. It's it's purely for these mechanical tomfoolery bits that you know this is even a question really worth asking. It, it may be worth asking culturally whether the fact that the film had strictly heterosexual sex suggests a sort of lack of imagination or a, a bias in the storytelling. But it's such a small cast that it's also yeah. it's hard to say. Oh, but why weren't you representative enough? with the three sex acts that happened in the film. So it's like, I, I don't, I don't feel like there's anything super obviously, you know, there's no big eyebrow hitch I have at the film for only having heterosexual sex. Um, whereas if this turned somehow into an ongoing television series, I think yeah. they'd have to address that. And I think they'd do so by going for a much broader diversity of, uh, of sexuality and, and just casting in general. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a big question. You got to figure out, uh, what counts so you can because like if, if you were really in a hurry like you're like I, I i have to stop running i i need a break just go find someone and just give them a quick two minute handy out of the blue and then and then you're like Phew, okay okay now i i bought myself but a be few days. really emotional about it because that's yeah <laughs> yeah does the ghost care what if what if you're having i mean it seems like can you fake it with the ghost can you can you fake the ghost <laughs> out by just you know he's like oh god this is so good this guy totally is having sex with me that I love. Well, I mean, I mean, we see when, when Jay and Gregor, it's like she's Jay. so she's so not into it. Obviously, you don't have to be into it. She yeah. was she was she could not have been any less emotionally invested. In it's probably like the least enthusiastic consensual sex I've seen in a movie. Where yeah, it was where it was, very like you where know, it was where, where it was serious rather than like you know I could see yeah. that in a comedy for a joke. I could see that in a situation where it's supposed to be like a sexual assault scenario, but I where mean, she just... all but checked her watch. Like yeah. she, she did everything except like you know be you know like look over at like a clock somewhere or something. Yeah, yeah. It was um, there, there was no there was an entire it was entirely unambiguous. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know about that. One one idea that uh, I liked this this is an idea Angela had for tactics is if you wanted to build yourself a little extra buffer space, don't do what what. Hugh did with the whole complicated kidnapping and explanation thing. Yep. What you do is you arrange a threesome, oh. and this is this is how you get a double whammy. You can't just have sex with one person and then have sex with another person, and and double up your your, your, your prediction. Have to right. Have sex. right. So what you do is you arrange a threesome and you make sure you go first, and then you make sure that they go second. And that way, boom, you you put it to you give it to Alice, and then Alice gives it to Bob. And you've got two you, right there. But then you can't have sex with Bob. Well, yeah. Because well, I think you can pass it back if there's a third person, right? Oh, do you think you could do a loop like that? I don't think, I don't think you would want – I don't think the ghost would want to allow that because that gets very complicated. But, but maybe. I don't know. Scrap it in an infinite loop. Well, see, the thing is if, if, if Alice is infected and Alice fucks Bob and gives it to Bob, Bob fucks Charlie, gives it to Charlie – 
Charlie fucks Alice, gives it back to Alice. Are Bob and Charlie off the hook then? Because then the monsters assume assume Alice then sticks with it. No, I don't think it. you're ever Mon- off the hook. Well, but okay, I... but, but just follow me on this. Okay. So 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 Alice to Bob, Bob to Charlie, Charlie back to Alice. Alice gets croaked by the monster. The monster's like, I took that out. Now that the problem is Alice leads back to Charlie and then Bob and back to Alice. But then after that, Alice leads back to whoever before too. So how does the monster decide? Does it say, oh, well, I definitely need to go after Charlie and Bob. Or does it say, I need to go after whoever gave this to Alice? Because at that point, it could be Charlie, but it could also be Zed, who is the person who gave it to Alice in the first place. So I think that, in that, your enormous like lab, like paramilitary lab situation there would be like an entire fleet of mathematicians devoted to this thing well and i think that you have to resolve it one way or the other and this is okay so the the organization the 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 giant roving lab organization here's what they do they also take end-of-life volunteers uh Ah. you know compensate them very well you know it's a big reward for your next of kin and whatnot you already know that you're prepared to die, you're willing to do so in a somewhat uncomfortable way after a not so uncomfortable uh, episode. So, uh, do you think they would just like operate like a nursing home slash uh, hospice clinic where everybody is incredibly encouraged to fuck? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just, and they'll 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 do very organized. You can have all the sex you want, but you need to register it so they know what the chain was, so they can trace all the different patterns. You have to disclose the sex you're having. They give you all the all the the, the, the drugs you want, all the pain medication you want. Uh, they monitor you and they get feedback from you on when the ghost is approaching you, uh, so that you can let them know and they can just flood you with painkillers and whatnot to let you just completely dissociate and not feel it when the ghost, you know, then proceeds to murder you. Uh, and yeah, they, they they collect data on that and then they can come up with. Uh, disambiguation of like like what is what is the mechanism of inheritance of the virus in well, all these different scenarios? You can test it empirically. Yeah, exactly. So they can test all these different scenarios, and they can find out either there is a decisive. Well, we know it either does or does not do tag backsies in loops, you know. Right. Or they can see if it does both. They can at least study it as like a probability machine. They can look at it as a, a non. Uh, <laughs> a non-deterministic finite automaton. Is what this would be modeled at, probably in a computer science sense, a, a a connected graph of nodes where there's probabilities associated with its decision to move along one path or another when it comes to a decision point. So it, it could be modeled that way, even if it doesn't get definitive about it. Definitely does go to Charlie and Bob after Alice before Zed, or definitely skips from Alice straight to Zed and Bob and Charlie got lucky because of the loop. Um, so I think I think it'd be doable. I think it could be studied. I think it could be. Could you create a loop so complicated that it would not be able to solve it? It's an interesting question. What's this thing's processing power? And uh, that's that's why I'm inclined to think this thing would probably take. Because you can get a you can you can get people to have sex a lot within just you know a constrained course of time, where if you could figure out like you know a a, a formulaic way of having people do it that the monster would not be able to reliably track back across a long enough time, uh, what the uh, you know who was doing it. Yeah, another. Thing, oh, I guess. Hmm, yeah. Here, here's here's another another approach to the problem. Let's let let's let's assume what we have instead is a a eccentric billionaire who gets the disease, figures out what it is, and decides he wants to deal with it. But, I'm going to pretend this is Batman, if that's okay. Okay, Bruce Wayne. Uh, uh, the Joker arranges for Bruce Wayne to have sex with a haunted uh, supermodel or something. 
and and thus tricks him into having this deadly life-threatening thing. It doesn't really work for Batman because Batman wouldn't do what I'm about to describe. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, some this would be better for like you know super villain sort of character. He has this thing. He knows this thing is going to come for him. He knows it'll never stop. He also understands that he can seed this out. So he takes the let's have a threesome thing to a much, much farther uh, level. He seeds a, a massive international orgy. And so he has people travel from all over the globe. And, and he carefully, this is invite only, he selects them from a really well-distributed collection of places on the globe. Figures out, you know, and these people who have very steady lives, who stay pretty predictably in the places where they are. Has a hundred people come to this massive international orgy, very carefully orchestrates what might seem like a random chance spin the bottle sort of series of sexual couplings as this big exhibitionist thing they're all doing so that he can arrange it so that each person who has sex next in the chain passes it on to someone else who's headquartered like several thousand miles away. Now the thing is he doesn't care if every single one of these people dies. He doesn't care. This is why it's not Batman. Batman would not do this. <laughs> but uh, he, So he's fine if they all die. He just cares that he doesn't have to worry about this ever again in his life because he's going to make sure that the travel time from each point to next point is enough multiplied by the number of people in the chain that there's no way this ghost can ever get through them and back to him in time. Hmm. So he, he, just, he just punts it. And he solves the problem in that sense for himself not necessarily for anything else because he's, he's not going to f- stop these people from having sex. Whoever the alpha is at the end of it, you know, he can't know that they won't have sex with someone else and perpetuate another chain. But he doesn't care because that's just extra padding for him. That's <laughs> never going to be a problem for the rest of the people. And, and he can even repeat this too. Uh, in, a, in a Batman-esque turn, he'll carefully monitor these people to find out who has died so that he can arrange the next orgy once the buffer has been eroded too much if things erode more quickly than expected. Uh, so he can he can just throw another orgy and repeat the whole process and keep padding it out decades at a time worth of global ghost walking. I think hmm. I think I think that would be a good scenario too. I wonder how it would punish people that would like go around its rules like that. Do you yeah, think I don't would, know. But maybe like maybe it is powerful to make it more wrathful, and then you're really screwed. Yeah, well, and I wonder like would would the ghost develop? some sort of reaction to this, or would it just keep plodding along? Is it just yeah. that stupid? I mean, you know, another thing we didn't talk about here is the idea of this as literally a sexually transmitted disease. It seems like a really obvious metaphor, but, right. you know, you could say, well, is this, you know, essentially uh, meditation on something like HIV where, like, it, it's literally a sexually transmitted death sentence? I think least. it could be, it maybe, if not even that, but just a, a like, you know, meditation or whatever on like post abstinence only sex education where <laughs> you know their generation of kids is like well depending on where they are if they are in like a more progressive place and I don't know what kind of place Michigan is unfortunately but they would be it's a state getting, it's in the it's in the yeah. northeastern United States I'm not sure where the United States is <laughs> um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, like, you know, these are kids growing up with, like, the specter of all sorts of STDs. Like, all, you know, I was maybe overly worried about something like that when I was, uh, you know, their age, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe that was a, uh, I was as worried as other people were about just, like, catching anything at all because you are from a relatively young age. I think they started, like, fifth grade with us. 
you're you know at a relatively young age made uh, made aware of these like health hazards and and why they exist and how they're transmitted and it's just so intricately linked to something that you know your brain is desperately trying you to you know have you achieve if you're a certain sort of person yeah um, yeah yeah well I feel spent that was uh yeah as a as a good film, I'm glad we did it. I'm glad I went and saw it in the theater. It's a good second year anniversary movie. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm I'm so glad this was not uh, the remake of My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> yeah, because that yeah. would have been a that would have been a <laughs> especially because that mean we'd have to watch the remake of My Bloody Valentine again and talk about it again. Uh, I don't know which I would dread more. That was just I'm starting to feel down was... just talking about how yeah. bad. <laughs> Let's not get into it. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, uh, I, 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 I would like to continue seeing horror films like this come along. This, this, yeah, yeah. I, this was better than it would have needed to be for me to be relatively happy with it. Uh, and I'm glad it's not quite what I was starting to wonder if it was based on what little I'd seen. Um, yeah. And like, I think as far as like characterization goes, uh, this was, has been like one of the probably like, I don't want to say deepest, but like most complex portrayal of people movie that we've seen on the show uh, that we've watched for this podcast. Yep. Also, if this had been made like 10 years ago, I think Chloe Sevigny maybe as, as Jay, I sort of got that vibe a little bit. I have a friend who looks like Jay. Um, and who is not 19. I do not have a 19 year old (laughs) friend. Um, but she does look like Jay and I had like a hard time being like, okay, this is, it, it weirded me out a little bit. Um, wait, where was I going with this? I don't know. I just oh. thought Chloe said me. Yeah. She, uh, I, I don't know. I think, I think she, I, she, she, she would have been a little bit more world weary to begin with probably, but I mean, yeah. that's, that's, she's, she's played that sort of character very well. That yeah. doesn't mean that she's stuck in that character because she seems like a pretty solid actress in general. Yeah. But yeah, that, that was sort of like the thing. It's interesting that the, the cast of this movie almost entirely consists of people who have pretty much been in this movie. Like there's a couple exceptions, yeah. but most of them have done uh, not much work. The the the, the, the teacher reciting uh, proof rock has done a bunch of stuff, uh, and Paul has done a bunch of stuff. But everybody else, pretty pretty small collection. Yeah, a couple stuff. of the people uh, don't have Wikipedia entries. Yeah, they have IMDb entries, but I mean you. <laughs> My dog is an IMDb. Oh, yeah, if you show up on a film set and eat a donut, you can get an IMDb entry. Yep. Um, why do I sound so bitter about yeah. that? <laughs> it's like all I of a sudden this care. is some catty fucking like, you know, we're 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 some Z-list also rands who just, you know, we're talking shit about all the other people who are having more success than we are. Uh, <laughs> I only had a crawler and they didn't give me one and I'm pissed. <laughs> It's like I specifically asked for the crawlers. There wouldn't be crawlers if I hadn't talked to craft services. You know. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, that feels like a good stopping point. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, yeah. hope. Hope hope you go see this one. Like mm-hmm. we didn't really recap this one at all. I don't think it occurred to us to. But then again, this seems like one of the ones you're more likely to actually go see because it's out right now. Yeah, uh, definitely go see it. It's really worth seeing. Probably um, should have started the show mentioning that. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a good idea. But uh, what do you do? People know us by now. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we'll get this up on uh, Facebook and Tumblr. And yeah, if you have thoughts or questions or ideas or know something about the oh, state of digital projectors. Another thing I should have brought up at the top is that we now have a Twitter account with. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, it's uh, at We Have Such Films. Um, and we'll be, you know, tweeting the new episodes from there and then retweeting it to our personal accounts. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll post some other horror-related stuff up there. Uh, probably not too much uh, just to, uh, you know, not... We don't want to overwhelm you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but maybe more than the Tumblr does that we, <laughs> you know, definitely remember exists, except when posting the episodes. Yep. Or especially when posting the episodes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, for one thing, I am personally on... I think you as well. I don't think you, you're on. Not are you on Tumblr very much? Not really. I've I've abandoned yeah. too many Tumblr related projects to be able to go there without feeling yeah. guilty. So I have like a generalized <laughs> Tumblr, and like I'm on there browsing occasionally, but I'm definitely on Twitter like all day, all the time. Yeah, I have a whole which... virtual desktop dedicated to TweetDeck uh, that searches for a couple different things, uh, along with just generic Twitter type stuff. So that's it's a pretty good way to catch my attention usually with an at Josh Millard or whatever. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do the things. We'll figure out what we're going to do next fortnight. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, uh, pleasure talk to you as always, sir. Yep. Good, good podcasting. Good, good, good film. Have seeing suching. <laughs> Night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>